Hello, welcome to another session of the uh, Corona Committee. It's our 140th uh, meeting, and it's uh, called Resolution uh, 53-144. I'll tell you later on what it uh, is all about, and I have some guests who can explain what's behind this resolution. We have some interesting guests today. First of all, as the first uh, pair of guests, we have two uh, human rights advocates um, who will speak about Resolution 53-144, and they will speak about their criminal complaint to the International Criminal Court of, uh, in The Hague for Crimes Against Humanity. Uh, there is a longish sort of a story behind it that we'll speak about. And then we'll have a psychologist and entrepreneur who will speak about the historically traceable quest for immune-preventing uh, vaccines, I think it's probably uh, immune-preventing vaccines. Oh, I understand it as a very special type of vaccine. So, fertility um, prevention via immune reaction and the striking parallels to the COVID-19 vaccination campaign and basic stuff about the WHO agenda of fighting overpopulation. Then we have a pharmaceutical whistleblower who will speak about the authoritative role of the Department of Defense, DOD, in all aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic and, in particular, the uh, nature of the response to it, i.e. the choice of uh, measures taken, and then the um, um, assessment of uh, Project Veritas. There's a video in which a Pfizer employee admits that Pfizer is considering targeted mutation of coronaviruses to more quickly develop better matched vaccines. So behind closed doors, some things are happening that we, uh, you would want uh, not to happen. And then by way of conclusion, we have a writer and columnist who we will discuss the question of whether Germany is now uh, waging a war of aggression against Russia um, and how recent events should be classified from the point of view of the uh, 2 plus 43 and what financial interests of the U.S. arms industry are uh, behind the ever-increasing payments um, by um, the EU countries. You can ask questions, of course, by the way to www.corona-ausschuss.de slash F140. Right, uh, so we have um, moved closer to the war now with um, a delivery of the um, battle tanks, the Leopard 2 battle tanks. Um, and I think I would uh, agree with former Chancellor Helmut Schmidt, uh, better negotiate 100 hours than uh, for not uh, than shooting for a single minute. So instead of delivering arms, we should try to get this thing uh, sorted uh, through diplomatic avenues. And uh, the population in all countries doesn't want any war. Who wants war? Um, people prefer to uh, deal with their children, uh, their career plans, or do something useful rather than having bombs dropped around them. So, and against this background, I think it is not only in this context that we have to prevent war escalating all the way to us, but also to stop it um, where it's actually raging right now for the people in Ukraine. And I uh, don't think that um, ever further uh, arms races uh, will help us any there. I think it has to be done with peaceful means and with the power of the word. 
and the determination of the people of the world to stop this war and to uh, find um, an exit path out of it. That is the way we have to look for the solution. We have to look for anything else is pure madness. And I have to say uh, the um, warmongering words that you hear uh, here, uh, left, right, and center, that you're getting slightly involved, um, um, I think that is completely off. Peace is the way forward. Now, the name uh, resolution 53-144 has to do with uh, what the two uh, people uh, we're interviewing now have been dealing with, um, have been dealing with for a while now, and are now doing it uh, as a very important project. It is a UN resolution which is targeted at uh, protecting human rights defenders um, very specifically, very specially. It's not binding as far as I know, but it has very strong symbolic force. It's about uh, people who try to defend human rights, uh, freedom rights, uh, fundamental rights, uh, should be uh, should enjoy special protection. That is something that you've been doing for a while now, that we're doing here as well. And all the people who have um, gotten active during the crisis and stood up for democracy, um, but also human rights uh, um, uh, defenders, um, especially. Maybe you uh, would like to introduce yourselves and then uh, speak about uh, this um, special resolution. And then I'm curious to hear what else you brought along. Yes, we are um, Volker and Sarah Luzia Rossing, and Sarah has submitted the criminal complaint in Den Haag, and that is being inspected now to see if it's going to be accepted or not. And this resolution 5344 is an unbinding resolution of the UN General Assembly. Whether it will become binding due to habitation is something that we're going to see probably in some point in the future. However, their human rights defenders is nothing else more than a more posh word for activists. <clears throat> and uh, somebody who points out um, missituations, who stands up for health, working in a hospital, for example, in all areas. It could be a politician, it could be someone with a low-paid profession, and so on. So no qualification really needed. The only point is that um, human rights defenders should not be treated worse or be subjected to repressions without any protection. And uh, this uh, title is only uh, a sign that we know about the resolution and we want to defend people off. I would like to move on to our presentation, which is uh, 32 charts, and then we will be happy to answer questions. So on 26th of 11th, we filed the complaint. <clears throat> Um, 
It was 720 pages, 400 people are charged and unknown persons are charged. Over 600 witness statements um, were subjected mainly from Germany, Greece, Canada and many other countries. Many coming from Germany is due to the case that Corona Committee supported us at the time, calling four witnesses and crimes against uh, humanity, Article 7 of the Rome Statute. Um, this is uh, where this court is competent for. And uh, we see this fulfilled in many points. We did this as volunteer investigative work from August 2020 to November 2022. And uh, many people helped us a lot but they didn't want to be mentioned by name here so this is why we have to thank them and honestly everybody who helped us to do this it was a great job we thank you very much to be able to do this um, in these 28 months <clears throat> um, we collected and submitted one terabyte of evidence and we also like to point out that the German people um, have agreed to the human rights which are inalienable for every citizen. And um, that means we are allowed to fight for human rights and to make this public and making this public fulfills our um, <clears throat> obligation according to the German court, uh, Civil Code, which is about warning people to um, uh, provide and make sure there's not going to be more victims. Um, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the jurisdictions, the admissibility and the complementarity and the questions that have to be answered for every criminal complaint. And we're going to take an example to show that the health has been instrumentalized for geostrategic purposes. We're going to uh, show what the definition of um, organized crime is. We're going to talk about the facts of the Roman statute. There is uh, a factual, objective, and circumstantial condition which applies here health and damage caused by the vaccinations, why so many people went along who didn't want to, shock strategy and nudging, and then that this is not a corona pandemic, <clears throat> and why the corona vaccinations are bioweapons. We're going to show a diagram uh, explaining that this is not only crimes against humanity, but it's also terrorism and organized crime, depending on the respective definitions you take as a base. And then it was pretended that this was the Infection Protection Act, and uh, this was above all other rights. And uh, we have a an explanation of what other rights are above this act, and um, then an outlead outlook for the need of political actions. And um, this is uh, the exercise of the jurisdiction. 
is something that um, we have in major the states who were members of this a big number of Asian state uh, African states Asian states contributions of uh, members of the member states and if a uh, <clears throat> state is uh, having this crime on its territorium and uh, it can also be a non-member state or presentation by the UNSC. It doesn't make any difference where the victims are or what nationality they have. Um, <clears throat> that the people who contribute to the nationals, for example, for the de for the perpetrations, is uh, the uh, propaganda or where the vaccines, which are bioweapons, are produced. That could be something in a different place from where it is um, used. Talking about complementarity. Here, the international court is only complementary to the jurisdictions of the member states. And a case is not admissible if, with respect to the objective fact, the prohibited things are not serious enough. For example, if this is just humiliating, humili humiliating people and not uh, torture, or minor health issues and not severe health issues, just two examples. Also, it is not um, whether a member state is investigating the case and is neither unwilling nor unable to do so, or if a member state has decided not to prosecute the subject in question, if the uh, unless it was unwilling or unable to do so, or if the member state has already prosecuted the suspect in question and is neither unwilling nor unable. Unwillingness or incapacity is always refers to the criminal prosecution. So that's the only area. And the shielding effect is not as big as it looks like in the beginning, but it only refers to the respective contributor to the offense. So, if the member state only prosecutes parts of the offense, um, then Haag can prosecute the remaining parts. We have in Germany quite a number of aspects of unwillingness, just a few to give some examples here, because the federal constitutional court um, is binding for all three powers in the state and respectively it's much more difficult if the constitutional court was unwilling to find out um, on behalf of the prosecution that the constitutional court didn't look at certain aspects. We can see this for example in the uh, ruling of the federal emergency break uh, from September 2021 where the constitutional court said that for corona um, it is enough to follow what the Robert Koch Institute says. So this is just uh, an unmissability um, just plugged from uh, plain air. And another case is 
Um, we know that the fundamental laws and uh, rights are inalienable, and the vaccination obligation on the constitutional court allowed that the professional freedom is restricted, and it was quite clear that they were unwilling here, and this is why we can go to Den Haag. Another point is that uh, prosecution is bound by instruction. Um, the uh, politics can call them back on Article 146. What's relevant for any criminal complaint, uh, be it at the national level or in The Hague, um, is the following. We mentioned two sources. Um, my wife read four or five different uh, um, criminal um, case uh, books. Well, ten. Well, all right. Uh, it's important you have to know who uh, fulfills each of the objective and subjective elements of the offense. Uh, when, that means uh, then where, uh, that refers to um, the crime scene. It depends on whether it's within the reach of the ICC, then um, how that's uh, the objective aspect. We'll get back uh, to uh, to that later. Um, we uh, will have to see what is the connection between the various um, offenses. Uh, so the question is, uh, to what extent is somebody involved? Uh, what's the severity? Also, the political element, how are things connected? And the systematic um, connection between things then. With what? That is uh, the tools. Um, uh, tools are palpable, um, means are not uh, palpable, but they're the means of committing the offense. And then uh, why the motives? Um, um, so that's not to be confused with uh, subjective um, uh, facts, uh, because this has to do with willingness and uh, intent. But um, a part of subjective elements um, are uh, important for the um, level of um, the severity of the penalty, if any. Now the next slide. Um, uh, who are the people who are suspected of being perpetrators? Um, that is something that we uh, will not publish here for obvious reasons, but what we can say is that it is uh, basically about a number of private groups with different objectives who use state organizations and international organizations, but it is not originally uh, based on individual governments. Now, next slide. Types of participation, that is basically uh, staged here. Um, that's different from the German uh, criminal code. Uh, the most severe thing uh, is, according to Article 25, Paragraph 3 of the Rome Statute, first of all, perpetrator, i.e. the people who actually commit a crime. And if somebody has a um, um, an act, a criminal act committed by others. Um, so you can do that by, for instance, make laws that oblige others to become complicit in a um, um, an act of crime. Then instigators, that's people who uh, publicly call on um, um, the public to um, get involved. And then uh, abettors and accessories. Um, those are people who pass on orders, um, thus forcing others to get um, 
uh, involved in the in the crime, and uh, the last, the lowest level, is contributors who contribute by other means. I've given some examples already. Um, we've seen, for instance, there are acts of law and um, regulations where others are uh, compelled to uh, get involved in the crime. Um, that's level A here. Um, but you can also nudge people into becoming um, uh, accessories. That's um, here, item A. It's also those who make tools or means available. Um, uh, example for beers, for instance, to call for a compulsory vaccination or to discriminate uh, against uh, unvaccinated uh, people, uh, which are um, comparable to apart apartheid discrimination. Um, and we uh, saw that, unfortunately, during the COVID um, period. So now uh, that would be uh, level B. And then level C would be if somebody uh, finances or obtains uh, tools. Then the next slide, how is it done, with what is it done? And what's important is that many people who became involved as uh, accomplices um, are on a need to know, otherwise they wouldn't have participated. Now there's another um, slide that has to do with the uh, prehistory, basically. How could we get to this point, actually? These uh, pandemic exercises, they were triggered by the fact that in, back in the 1990s, His Excellence, former US President Bill Clinton, was enthusiastic by a, a science fiction novel which dealt with a, um, an attack with bioweapons, and he determined at the time that the U.S. has to be prepared if this ever becomes reality. And um, just to put the U.S. in a position to protect the population. So there were these exercises first in the U.S., then internationally, of how to protect uh, the population against certain uh, bioweapons. Uh, but this, over the time, over the years, shifted gradually towards uh, the question of protection against pandemics. And this was used and continues to be used for private geostrategic objectives. So the governments were basically um, abused here, were harnessed here. And this is well um, described by Chronicle of a uh, crisis announced um, by, uh, by Paul Schreier, published at the West End um, Publishing House. And um, it went all the way to uh, what we saw in 2019, which was actually already uh, comparable to this Event 201 um, exercise, which had a lot uh, of similarity with uh, the actual uh, COVID crisis. And the vaccine in all these exercises was always the um, savior. It was always like a, a cure-all. It was always this one and only solution so um, decision makers were conditioned to believe that a vaccine would be the solution uh, to the crisis. And so uh, people were prepped, um, decision makers were prepped uh, for any actual pandemic developing or any supposed pandemic to develop to use a, a vaccine in that case. Okay, one more thing, this book, which is the source, um, it's a science fiction book um, that was the source um, is uh, microambient from Patrick Silverman. Well, what's also important here is that uh, from the 1990s on, when there was this decision uh, to use this geostrategically as well, i.e. 
health was no longer uh, just geared towards getting people healthy again, but the health system was utilized to uh, for political and geo-strategical uh, uh, purposes to ensure, with reference to other states as well, that health could be abused strategically. That's an extremely important factor to understand what's going down here. Well, and the bioweapon research also was uh, cloaked up um, by saying oh, we have to protect the uh, population if something happens. And uh, that's why they said they just wanted to research on vaccines just in case because they're not allowed to produce bioweapons. And if you cloak that up with the vaccine research, you kind of outbalance this. Organized crime, that's a definition of the federal criminal court and knowing what to do just to show what this is if um, the definition from 20, uh, 1919 is organized crime is the plan commission of criminal offenses determined by the pursuit of for profit or power which individually or collectively are of considerable significance if more one or two or more participants work together longer for an indefinite period in a division of labor using commercial or business like structures using violence other means suitable for intimidation or expecting influence on politics, the media, public administration in the judiciary or the economy. We um, propose a different term that um, w to join up what is uh, spread out to different political areas. We propose to say geographic, geostratically organized terrorism has emerged as a new phenomena area in the voluntary investigations of our criminal complaint corresponding to the definition of organized crime supplemented by influence on social associations, science and medicines, as well as terrorism, private or individually committed by exploiting politics and exploitation of medicine or geostratic planning for political goals, the previous police phenomena areas of political motivated crime, organized crime and terrorism only partially cover the crime at hand here. And now coming to the Roman statute, um, attack on the civilian population, circumstantial facts, that's something that we don't know from um, our um, courts and our law here, it's always um, on the victims in the civil population, and it has to be a policy. This means that it is not um, arbitrary acts, um, but it has to be there. There has to be something that connects all the individual deeds and offenses. In Corona, we have this as certain in because certain interests are pursued and that masses of people who didn't want to become offenders have been motivated to commit offenses by nudging and coercion. This is done in a quite planned way, and that shows that this is 
um, very well coordinated and orchestrated. It is a large-scale op uh, operation because there's uh, many people who are victims and it is systematic. For crimes against humanity, a single step would be enough, but here we see a planning step-by-step -step approach. Now, coming to the subjective elements of the offense, this is something, as we know from our uh, courts, and uh, you have to look at this in two areas. Um, for the total, and uh, the offender has to know what their own contribution is, and he has to know that the whole is more than the individual parts. And the knowledge has to be done there, uh, available with a certain um, knowing that the result of the offense, if the course of the events as goes as expected, there would be a damage. Of course, this is not to be confused with the motive, um, because this is just about uh, causing what is forbidden. There is an exception here in case of death, um, a uh, possible damage, a possible intent is also enough. And um, this is something that we find in the comment by uh, Professor Gerd Velik. Uh, and uh, this is independent on the individual constitution of the offense. And here we see me on the day when we submitted and we um, put the letter in the letterbox in Den Haag in the International Court. And now we can move on to the objective facts. There's 11 um, ways to fulfill this. We see eight of them fulfilled. One is murder. Also with contingent intent is sufficient here. These are the points that we have in severe damage to the health, as in letter K, um, leading to death. Uh, let me talk about that. So serious damage to the harm, uh, to the health. And uh, we have the vaccines here, the so-called vaccines, which have to qualify as a bioweapon. We have uh, um, torture physically and uh, psychologically. We have isolation. We have postponed operations. We have unnecessary ventilation, many, many things and also by the shutdowns in the poorer countries where the economy was switched off, um, leading to um, the poor countries not having enough money to supply everybody with food and drugs. Also, B, ex um, extinction, um, which is not only direct, also leading to living conditions that lead to the death of many people. We've had this in the shutdowns in 2020. We see the um, World F uh, Food Organization, how many starvations are to be expected and how many medical drugs um, were not provided to the poorest countries because money wasn't there due to shutdowns. And also this is that people are forced to accept this bioweapon vaccination and die of it. 
and the provision of liberty uh, what that is uh, exactly is something that we have from the uh, professor dr vallis comment this is if you are locked in a single room or a cell apart from that we have the severe restriction of physical movement so that means a, a room as large as a ghetto or a, a camp um, what is also of importance here is the duration and arbitrariness we have this due to the many false positives and for the duration we have the care homes where the people have been locked up for a long time until now in part and uh, also in hospitals uh, long uh, duration depending on the circumstances we don't have only this and not only in quarantine but also in uh, curfews and also here it is a different if people um, are unnecessarily locked into a single room in their flats I think here it's more arbitrariness even so that a shorter duration is enough there we have torches with a couple of extra slides and the point is K here for the people who have no control and you still manage to create a severe um, severe harm and suffering and uh, we have uh, infertility sexual violence infertility by the um, vaccines we have prosecution it's important to have this it has to have a certain severity uh, it has to be as severe as an article 7 or any other articles of the statute uh, so that easy and light cases are not characterized as crimes against humanity. And we have disappearance of people, especially if uh, relatives are not informed for a longer time if um, uh, how their relatives are in care homes and hospitals. And case serious harm has to be as severe as in, in at least one other article as in the Roman statute. So that's light harm of health is not counted and uh, what we don't have here is uh, displacement and slavery and apartheid you need a discrimination for example by skin color or something like that we don't have this and uh, here are some sources on the serious health damage caused by corona so-called vaccinations what's important is the website uh, called vaccine injuries which gives an overview of more than a thousand studies worldwide on serious harm then um, a reproductive harm is shown in uh, um, the lifestyle news article thousands of reports of menstrual irregularities rep reproductive dysfunction following covid in uh, vaccines and uh, some other uh, examples are here correlations um, between the corona vaccination campaigns and excess mortality uh, we would cite uh, the study by professor dr kubantner and according to TKP, uh, article countries with highest vaccination rates have higher death rates than others. Then drastic differences in disease mortality rates between uh, different batches of uh, uh, corona vaccinations, uh, as uh, also mentioned or so, um, talked about in the corona committee here. Um, then a dramatic increase in U.S. soldiers, according to medical records of can uh, reports of 
uh, cancer, miscarriages, neurological disorders, etc. Then, um, then uh, the damage of uh, parts of the immune system uh, um, by having a fewer um, cells, immune cells, such as uh, killer cells, but also cells that combat um, inflammations. Um, that is very well explained in uh, one study. Then the uh, uh, damage to stem cells, according to a study published in uh, 2022, on, uh, in November 2022, um, there were uh, fewer abilities to um, differentiate different types of um, um, white blood cells in uh, umbilical cord blood. Um, um, and that is important uh, for the question of um, how cells can rejuvenate. So, so aging uh, bones or aging, generally speaking, can be affected here. Now, the next slide, persecution, let's uh, look at uh, objective facts here. Persecution is an unauthorized uh, deep interference with fundamental or human rights, i.e. Uh, legal protections that are uh, inviolable and therefore uh, cannot be violated. And it has to be on the grounds of discrimination prohibited by international law. Um, for example, in Article 2 UN Civil Covenant or Article 2 of the UN Social Covenant and others, the severity of persecution must be comparable to at least one other offense, for instance, Article 6, um, genocide, um, or Article 8, uh, BIS of the uh, Statute of Rome. We see the following um, items as fulfilled. And we can use for comparability, just as um, second, the so phone is going off here. Comparability um, would also um, be established by Article uh, 8, i.e. crimes of war. And it seems the... Um, Speaker is just answering a uh, phone number or has frozen. I don't know what the status is. We can um, reconnect soon enough now. So, what we surely see here is that with all these points that uh, we have been looking at for a long time that this is actually legally relevant according to the Roman statute. And we see here economic persecution during shutdowns, political persecution with initial suspicions uh, against doctors and patients. And uh, this has apparently got the character of being uh, banned by the Roman statute, and I think this is quite a considerable work that Hassel Roisings have been going through here um, with all the evidence um, and uh, all the evidence provided. We um, helped them in getting uh, to find witnesses in German and in English 
So there should be sufficient evidence here and um, against the ICC. And it's interesting to see what this is all about. Also, this point, um, prosecution for occupation and health status. In case of bioweapons, that is, of course, a very problematic situation which puts people into a trade-off situation or prostituting them, kind of, um, having to accept a certain risk um, who wanted to stay in their job or had to for financial reasons, for example, that's a very monstrous situation. I see that uh, Ms. Hassel-Reusing and Mr. Reusing are coming back into the call, and uh, we're expecting them back any second now. I think it's very illustrative what they are saying here. It is a very complex situation. And it's very complex, but I think it's very clearly presented here. I can see you are back. Well, I beg your pardon. Somebody called there and, uh, sorry. So that kind of interrupted our uh, connection. So sorry for your patience. Um, thanks for yes. your patience. I have just... Uh, um, appraised your work. I think it's very good and very comprehensive. And uh, I think two years ago it was, and again and again, we kept uh, talking about this. It's a very complex situation, and it's a great comprehensive summary here. And we find all the points that we have uh, highlighted here. Thanks. I would like to uh, finish up. I'll, I'll hurry up a bit. So concerning persecution, again, that's unauthorized deep interference with fundamental or human rights on grounds of discrimination prohibited by international law. Uh, we see the largest number of uh, victims with the economic persecution during the shutdowns. For instance, certain industries are particularly affected, for instance, gastronomy, um, retail trade, entertainment industry, um, body-related services. Um, but uh, they uh, are also particularly uh, affected by the Great Reset. And uh, the severity is uh, commensurate with plundering. And uh, we uh, see an example from um, um, the, uh, you, uh, the Serbian conflict um, that plundering is, um, pillaging is um, part of uh, persecution or constitutes persecution. Then we have political persecution with general suspicion of doctors and patients because of certification masks, um, uh, mask certificates, or um, certification of um, incapability uh, to um, be inoculated. And this is as uh, severe as uh, illegal pillaging uh, with uh, if that happens to civilians, then this is a uh, would be a war uh, crime in the case of a war. Then we have prosecution for occupational and health status in case of uh, bioweapons, um, um, of bioweapons vaccination duty in the army and the health services. So that is again commensurate with um, uh, pillaging. 
and um, it is uh, contrary to um, the um, ban on um, human testing and on uh, the use of bioweapons. And then finally, uh, apartheid-like persecution. Apartheid is a um, system of discrimination uh, due to skin color. It's just not apartheid because it's not based on uh, skin color, but it is also um, a uh, type of discrimination. So that's commensurate with apartheid, really. Let me speak about torture. Torture is, of course, um, illegal due to uh, human rights agreements. And what it is, is intentional infliction of severe pain or suffering against people who are in custody or under control. So there's uh, two different things. Uh, control can be uh, over people that you do not have in uh, custody, for instance, psychological control. So people where you uh, don't have a custody, but where you can still uh, manage to um, um, inflict suffering on. That was item K earlier on. Uh, unless they're part of a sanction or a penalty permitted by law. So in some countries, there is a death penalty, for instance. So the intent was uh, not to um, abolish um, the death penalty uh, globally with this um, requirement, but um, un uh, unnecessary uh, suffering was to be prevented. Uh, torture is only given in case of sufficient severity. So. Um, this is not if uh, there is a lower level of suffering. Torture can be either psychological or physical. Uh, there was a study with 279 torture survivors um, from uh, the Yugoslavia uh, conflict. And the results, contrary to uh, what you might have expected, that physical torture is always worse than psychological uh, uh, torture. Uh, what really is crucial is the stress uh, caused by loss of control that uh, really commands or um, uh, controls how bad the torture is. Um, then um, um, torture is prohibited under international uh, criminal law, but also not only there, but also under uh, other agreements, uh, for instance, that's important for the work of lawyers if their clients are affected by torture, particularly psychological torture. And that can be independent of um, a, a criminal case in The Hague. Um, now, what um, is uh, necessary uh, to constitute uh, torture? Um, the criteria there are the charter coercion, which were developed by uh, Thierry Maison, uh, by Dr. Albert uh, Biderman um, in uh, 1975. It has been uh, accepted by NGOs. Amnesty International has been referring to it since 1975 as a yardstick of what is severe enough to be psychological torture. This is not a, a conclusive list, but it certainly is um, a, um, a reference. So this was certainly um, part of uh, the uh, main inspiration for psychological uh, torture in Guantanamo. It wasn't only um, uh, it wasn't only um, psychological torture there, but um, it was um, partially uh, psychological torture, mask wearing, for instance. Um, for instance, uh, um, it can be humiliation, it can be uh, fatigue, demonstration of uh, powerlessness, um, then meticulous rules, rules that seem to be 
uh, pointless um, when it comes to the um, ostentatious purpose of the rules, but that have the purpose of humiliating the victims. So now some examples of uh, torture um, in the context of corona. We have isolation, particularly in uh, shelters, because it took a long time, sometimes also with quarantine and um, curfews. There were huge differences, how long you were allowed to leave your home and under which conditions, etc., in different countries. Now, the masks, that is a torture uh, instrument, not least because it stops you from uh, breathing freely. Uh, also, um, um, it is necessary to relax. Uh, it is necessary to have um, freedom of breathing, basically. So under the mask, uh, you can breathe freely, and this can uh, increase anxiety and uh, fears. And this is um, reinforced by the threats of um, infecting relatives, which was used in many countries. It was used at least in Germany, uh, Austria, France, and Canada, quite diverse countries, in other words. Then the mask also constitutes psychological torture for people who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, people who have cardiological respiratory illness, uh, also uh, if you're healthy but have to work, uh, um, uh, do physical labor, then this can also be a type of uh, torture. There are physical uh, aspects of uh, torture with the mask as well, if you have to wear it for a long time or if you have to do physical labor. Um, we saw long uh, hours of wearing the mask, for instance, um, with school children, with uh, people at the checkouts and supermarkets, etc., with police officers, demonstrators, um, then um, the, this is a, a experimental uh, bioweapons vaccination without informed consent in the case of irreversible damage is also something that constitutes torture and police violence, depending on how severe it is, may also constitute torture. Now, the next slide is based on a report by Dr. Niels Meltzer. He is the UN reporter on uh, torture who um, also was heard um, uh, in um, a case in Berlin. He gave a, a report on psychological torture. You can find it via a reference AHRC slash 43 slash 49. He said torture can be physical or psychological with regard to the area application, but torture usually has consequences in both areas. Um, for the severity of torture, he not only refers to the Yugoslavian study, um, um, he looks at the extent of suffering or pain, uh, uh, not only to that, but also uh, with reference to the anti-torture um, uh, convention of the UN, also the intent and um, uh, of the perpetrator and the powerlessness of the victim. The uh, sufficient severity uh, is achievable by, by uh, several characteristics together, if even those, even if those individual characteristics in themselves are not severe enough uh, to constitute torture. Uh, human experimentation without informed consent um, or degrading inhuman treatment, including medical treatment with the severity of torture, can be um, a con constitute torture. Uh, forced abortion or sterilization can be torture. Uh, creation of fear, including infectious disease of infectious disease, is torture. Having to observe the torture of others is considered torture. And uh, learned helplessness, so that people believe that um, uh, things pass faster if they don't object, uh, that this will go um, uh, go away. Um, powerlessness, including withholding of fresh air, humiliation. 
through forced nudity, uh, observation of personal, personal hygiene, public shaming, mask as a tool of uh, um, sensory manipulation, solitary confinement of more than 15 uh, days. That uh, All of that is uh, considered to be torture. And he corroborated this uh, by citing different sources. Um, more than um, 40 countries have adhered to this um, uh, con anti-torture convention. Unfortunately, the uh, original is now breaking up. So, 21, um, the psychological point. So, we had so many people who didn't want to be involved in the offense. They have been psychologically made, uh, been made offenders. And the point is the perception is the center of the human psyche. Feelings in the mind are tools, but the perception is uh, what is central. We know a gentle perceptual shift falling asleep or waking up and harsh at death shocks, but um, um, the intensity between the two may vary. And by the shocks, the panics and the laws and the measures, um, which is psychological torture if the people can't evade it, uh, their perception has been shifted in such a way that they have to overcome a lot of fear in order to change their point of view. This is how the highly intelligent people are brought to line. Shock strategy has a long development history. It all started with torture experiments in the Nazi uh, concentration camps. And the research material was brought to the US, and there that was one of the inspirations for the MK Ultra program, which was a US research program looking at torture and mind manipulation with over 100 sub projects. And based on this shock strategy and nudging, shock, shock strategy is directed against entire societies. Um, however, it does not hit everyone as hard as a psychological torture. The history of the shock strategy is described in uh, great detail by Naomi Klein's book. It's been well used in Latin American dictatorships um, against oppositions, putting everybody um, in shock, in um, uh, also by the IMF and World Banking loan conditions, which is uh, well shown by uh, Mishodovsky's work. And uh, un, uh, uh, unserious um, advertising for the uh, vaccinations. We have examples for that. Shock strategy since the beginning of the corona crisis has been used nonstop, and nudging was added. Nudging manipulates people's need to belong to a group. And in corona, it was used, it was tried to uh, suggest that we have two new moral um, postulates, which is the vaccinations and that we had to wear masks, as if this were more important than our uh, fundamental laws. And this was um, addressing moral rights and the need to belong to a group postulating this as a morale. And there are a couple of more sources um, on the human rights, uh, sources on the prohibition of tortures, of course, uh, um, 
Peak hot Article 4, Article um, um, uh, 3, Convention Against Torture and Unallowed Human Experiments, Article 3 of the UN Convention of the Europe Charta. And it's important here that these human rights sources are important in the international law scenes also to interpret the Roman statute for those things who are not uh, regulated there. Uh, for example, the anti-torture conventions, Article 2, if there are orders that uh, demand torture are not allowed uh, to follow it. So also this also applies in emergency cases as the uh, corona situation was. And now participation, um, there has to be places to complaint bodies. And now let's move on to the motive. So, it's visible motives, and in our research um, on public sources and uh, sources from books and the motives that we could discover there, one is that we have an eugenically, eugenically motivated motive to control birth and population. And um, this is to be controlled by killing and fertilization. We have the pharma profits uh, to make money by making people sick first and then treating them, including damage to the immune system uh, by the vaccines before it has developed uh, so that people and uh, especially children who are less than six months old become subject to treatment lifelong. Well, yes, that's a very uh, important aspect. Uh, yes, and the fourth industrial revolution, revolution which is a transhumanistic ideology, ideology um, the services of humans, humans being uh, seen as um, as uh, resources, making them dependent of an electronic identity to participate in life. Also, occult uh, pieces demanding, for example, to change the time that we live in from post-Christ uh, or um, AD to um, AC. Um, and bankrupting as many states as possible, mainly by the shutdowns. This was the main objective in the Eurozone. We have the uh, ESM state insolvency and the enforced guarantee state. And uh, this creating of bankruptcies mainly aims to uh, create this guarantee state. Uh, most of the um, government tasks are taken over by private uh, institution to make the state independent of corporates. In the EU, there is additionally the idea to make it a republic by a EU um, constitution and a bankruptcy crisis is to be used in order to nudge these states to become members of a European Republic and by that do away with the former 
or the existing member states, of course, then uh, surveillance states with the corporates as um, the uh, surveyors, removing the government, and then the question when and where is this important? It's important to note the um, range and the scope of the ICC. Of course, important the time and the place and the international effect plays a role here. And the ICC in their proceedings looks at uh, looking at the people who bear most responsibility simply because they don't have sufficient capacity and they are subject or depending on help from other countries. And uh, 26, a few examples of the instrumentalities, which um, are the methods, which are the bio vaccines and the spike protein making human uh, cells to express this. These are means of the offense. Also the masks which are used for physical torture, things that you can that are not tangible, for example, isolation are instrumentalities, applying shock strategies as well, measures and propaganda nudging. Mind war is applied as well. Uh, in the sense that the psychological approach is the center of the approach to the human beings. And the PCR test for the pest, test pandemics, that something is measurable and uh, we can they can play out a so-called pandemic, uh, not only talk about prognosis, but make it an, an experience to the people, laws and regulations in accordance with that, Cambly instrumentalities and statistic manipulations, for example, the 28-day rule, rule that people um, who die within 28 days after a positive test are um, corona deaths and that only 14 days after the vaccinations you are counted as uh, corona uh, vaccine death and the others are called unvaccinating, um, stopping the influenza statistics from April to September 2020 at WHO level. Um, in order to note that we are here with the normal influenza. Then um, it's not a COVID pand or corona pandemic, um, according to the evidence. Uh, we have a pandemic because uh, on the 4th of uh, the May of 2009, the international health regulations have been changed. Since then, it's been a uh, sufficient uh, to have something like influenza, um, as harmless as an influenza, to declare a pandemic. So, um, in Annex 2 uh, to these health re regulations, which are uh, binding, um, there's a, a flow diagram that shows that influenza is already sufficient. And then it was claimed that we had uh, a zoogenic disease here. This is impossible because coronaviruses, according to Dr. Michael Yeden, who once was uh, the vice head of Pfizer, by 0.3% uh, per year. And that this 0.3% of uh, mutation should affect the spike protein, that the spike protein should then be uh, the uh, very mutation that allows uh, for species crossing and then for it to be the one 
that actually fits another species and that this species should be the human being and this should then actually uh, find its way from a bat to a human being is so unlikely according to a, a study from the 28th of uh, June 2004 in a different uh, a source, uh, a similar probability was mentioned. So uh, Dr. Yaden is not the only source that says it's basically impossible to cross the uh, species barrier. Uh, but it did happen in 2015 by manipulation of the WIV uh, virus in Wuhan uh, by manipulating a um, uh, the uh, a bat virus um, in such a way, uh, such a way that it uh, would um, match uh, human hosts. Um, that was tested by uh, manipulating mice that would have receptors, ACE, uh, ACE2 receptors, uh, they're called, that are actually human receptors. Um, so it was possible to see whether the mice uh, could be infected by this virus. However, the, uh, they were um, uh, infected by it, um, uh, but it only uh, killed a small number of the mice. Um, the mice who survived could not infect each other, uh, whereas the uh, natural uh, virus killed all the mice. So our conclusion is that uh, it's not possible to make a laboratory pandemic sufficiently uh, infectious and uh, virulent to kill uh, enough people. So we don't have a lab disease here. Um, I'd mentioned already the statistical mani uh, manipulation that we've seen um, that's repeated here again. Then the question is, well, there is no isolate of um, uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, so uh, some things have been questioned, uh, put in question, uh, where people had claimed that they had an isolate, even where a Chinese study published the uh, SARS-CoV-2 genome. They described how they did it. They did not isolate it. So they did not uh, remove all other material from it, uh, from uh, other viruses or whatever. And the fractions of the virus that they had, they were not able to recombine them to a full virus. Uh, what they did was they calculated. They said, that we believe it is similar to SARS-CoV-1. And if we assume this, then how could we put this jigsaw puzzle together. So a good bit of um, their, the genome published is just uh, intelligent guesswork. So we don't know whether the uh, virus as a whole exists. We don't, uh, like, we, it may exist, but it may only be the spike protein that exists. We don't know. With SARS-CoV-2, um, the it's probably not the um, um, SRT214 um, that was manipulated, but the RATG13 bat coronavirus. Um, that is something that uh, some researchers have uh, said. If you look at the actual um, spike protein, then we can see that the uh, largest uh, similarity is with uh, RATG13. That is um, corroborated by some Indian researchers. We had two different uh, sources here claiming this. So um, that's also um, uh, claimed by um, uh, something, uh, someone who's responsible for doing research in this field. Now, why, why is it a bioweapon? A bioweapon is a biological substance that causes serious damage to health or death without therapeutic, prophylactic, or other peaceful justification. In other words, 
uh, uh, that, oh, that's uh, how it's defined in the bioweapons uh, convention. Since we don't have a coronavirus pandemic, we don't have the justification to work with that sort of thing. The legal term of vaccination was softened um, at the right time in uh, EU directive um, that uh, defined genetic um, thera uh, therapeutics, um, accepting any vaccination that doesn't have to be called a, um, a genetic therapy. That was legalized back then that genetic manipulation if it is declared a vaccination against an infectious disease, will not have to be um, termed a, a genetic therapy. And during the corona crisis also, uh, the designation of vaccination has been softened. Um, it is enough to have the intent of, protect, uh, of um, achieving immune protection, even if it is no longer uh, achieved. Damage to health, we gave examples earlier. Some people die, other people suffer neurological damage, V-AIDS, autoimmune diseases, microthrombosis, myocarditis, pericarditis, myocardial um, infarction, stroke, uh, thrombocytopenia, uh, internal bleeding, trouble cancer, infertility, drastic reduction of adult stem cells, and probably corresponding consequences for uh, hematopoiesis and aging. But also, it's a bioweapon because uh, we have an artificial spike protein and because mRNA DNA uh, gene manipulation is achieved um, to produce um, the spike protein in people's own bodies. Then uh, there are um, several gene alterations. Um, that's important. Uh, it matches the a uh, ACE2. Um, and according to Dr. Richard Fleming, um, there are different sequences that you can find in HIV uh, viruses. They're probably responsible for prion um, damage. And of course, um, the fact that there is no corona uh, pandemic, but only the annual influenza pandemic, the medical prophylactic rather peaceful purposes for Article 1 under the uh, uh, Bioweapons Convention um, is not uh, fulfilled and therefore these things must not be um, made available and or declared vaccines. Now we have an overview um, to illustrate this so that you don't only see these things um, alongside each other, you have to see uh, uh, both crimes against humanity and organized crime and terrorism uh, um, are all met, and these are um, efforts developed by private individuals, and we try to make sure that, that all of this is interwoven. We try to show this with this overview. Now, how come we uh, claim that this is terrorism? It depends on the definition. It's a very wide definition in Germany. In uh, Germany, uh, in uh, Article 129a of the uh, Criminal Code, it is uh, defined as uh, terrorism is defined as any organization um, where at least three people get together in order to call uh, to uh, commit severe certain severe crimes several um, crimes are mentioned for instance among them crimes against humanity and if people get together for the purpose of committing crimes against uh, humanity 
under German uh, legislation, this is terrorism. The uh, UN definition is a bit narrower. They defined it in uh, 2004 in the UN Security Council. The definition here is that terrorism includes criminal acts, including killing, grievous bodily harm, or hostage-taking with the aim of creating fear among the general population or coercing a government uh, or international organization to um, take certain action or refrain from certain actions. So it's a rather narrow definition of terrorism. And on the 12th of September 2001, one day after 9-11, it's important to uh, underscore this uh, due to the urgency, because The Hague has to, be, has to realize that uh, it was back then it was uh, seen as very urgent and a larger number, a smaller number of people was affected then, back then, than today. So that was urgent. One day after 9-11, the uh, Security Council said that acts of terrorism which threaten peace or international security are to be combated by all means, and that all states should cooperate to bring the perpetrators, organizers, and sponsors of these acts of justice one day after the fact. And um, as I said, these are bioweapons. And the EU has a similar definition of, uh, as the UN Security Council. It has a few added aspects uh, that may constitute terrorism so that the EU uh, um, has the same uh, objectives, i.e. to put fear into the general population and to coerce governments or international organizations. But it also includes the possession or use of biological weapons. In the, uh, the possession of biological weapons constitute terrorism. Then uh, we were told that our constitutional rights uh, were, our fundamental rights had been suspended and that um, the um, uh, Infection Protection Act was the most important uh, act of law now. That's not true. The uh, Constitution um, overrides everything. Um, the fundamental rights are inviolable. International law prevail over simple laws, uh, as you can read in Article 27 in the Contractual uh, uh, Rights uh, Convention. And in Germany, the highest law, um, the, the highest laws are the first 20 articles um, in um, the Constitution, and then um, the rest of the Constitution follows, then the EU treaties, um, so, uh, and then uh, international law. It also has very high uh, uh, rank. Um, then UN legislation has, or treaties have a very high uh, rank. Um, um, UN resolutions, for instance, uh, are rights after uh, national um, constitutions, um, followed by European legislation, um, Geneva Convention, then the um, legal foundation for uh, the ranking is shown here in parentheses, then uh, standard international law, then national law. Uh, Germany has subscribed to all these uh, charters. Our uh, legal system is uh, open to application of all these international treaties, and our fundamental rights are suspended um, based on the um, infection protection law. One more slide. The outlook uh, for the uh, um, uh, need to take political action, we immediately need to end the corona vaccinations. Um, we need to stop the extension of the mRNA method to other vaccinations. Then the international health regulations are to be uh, amended. 
the WHO recommendations that uh, are not binding at this stage are to be made binding. We can see um, how um, even the non-binding recommendations have been implemented worldwide. So they're trying to implement this um, as per uh, December 2022. Uh, uh, we researched this, and they there was a recommendation of making this binding um, as part of the international health regulations. Then we still have the bioweapons vaccination obligation for soldiers abolished in um, the US already, still applicable in Germany. The mask. Um, mandate in the healthcare system, which uh, was used in uh, certain medical applications before the COVID uh, crisis as well. Then vis-a-vis um, the, the uh, vaccine manufacturers, uh, indemnity was guaranteed, so they can be held liable, but if they're con um, uh, condemned to pay penalties, they can be passed on to uh, the governments, i.e. to the taxpayer. However, this can be undermined if they uh, were um, engaging in gross negligence. We have to remember that these vaccines are bioweapons. If you, uh, you're not allowed to own uh, these bioweapons, you're, you're not uh, allowed to take possession of them. And this is some good argument um, uh, helping maybe governments to get out of these contracts. Then. The uh, vaccination victims uh, need to be supported by the state and that those who are responsible, particularly non-state actors, need to be uh, held liable. And I think it's important that The Hague and the various states need to focus on the main perps. Uh, we uh, need to have a truth commission in order to um, uh, move on to uh, victim-offender mediation. Now, let me uh, make a comment on the conflict with uh, Ukraine. What we noticed in the context of the Ukrainian conflict, nothing is monocausal, but NATO in November 2021 was made aware of the fact that these vaccines are bioweapons, and NATO at the time must have known that these vaccines were given to uh, German and U.S. soldiers, and um, Secretary General, uh, the Secretary General of NATO must have known about this, and they didn't take any action, visible action, even though NATO, NATO has, of course, a responsibility vis-a-vis -vis the soldiers of member armies, and in their way, they may have contributed to not exactly to defuse the situation uh, with Ukraine. Uh, there were numerous reasons for the escalation. Uh, what's interesting is that there was conflict of interest uh, uh, on the part of the NATO general secretary because he once was uh, the uh, CEO of a uh, vaccination promotion uh, organization, so uh, he was not independent. And I think uh, that is quite hefty. So the agenda shouldn't be war, but de-escalation, no? And now the speaker is breaking up again, unfortunately. Okay. Ms. Hasselroising, do you want to add something? Is there anything you'd like to add? Would you like to add something? 
Not at the moment. Well, first of all, thank you very, very much for this comprehensive and impressive presentation. That is a very good work, not only with the uh, 720 pages, but also with the summary that you've just presented here. And uh, in this clear and concise way, I personally see myself represented in that, what we have been suffering. I have got a couple of questions from the audience. Uh, one thing is how much can we depend on an objective approach to this by the ICC, or do we have to assume that they are externally controlled by money or whatever? Well, of course, one thing is you can look at what the ICC has done in the past, and the judges are appointed by many, many different states, so that they are unilaterally biased is quite improbable. And if you look at the former work of the ICC, the first prosecutor was from Argentina. I don't know his name by now. He only looked at cases from Africa. His successor, Fata Benzula from Ghana, looked at cases that were not only sourced in Africa. She was very courageous in doing so. And um, um, one of the countries, um, uh, Afghanistan, although the U.S. Uh, opposed chunks, um, uh, economic sanctions against her personally, they locked her bank account. And ten years ago, we had we have done a criminal point, uh, a criminal complaint. Uh, when the Greece case was on, at the time we didn't have enough witnesses, and at the time we couldn't have a perspective on the proceedings. Now the situation is different, and when we submitted the complaint nearly 10 years ago, 2012, that led to a um, uh, substantial deterring effect. So Den Haag in some way must have taken action, but they couldn't open the proceedings. They could only write letters, and we assume that they have done so at the time. And uh, even in a case where they saw that they need a deterrent at the point and we couldn't present enough witnesses um, to provide this and to open the proceedings. However, we saw that at the time it took an effect and that they defended the people in order to stop the extent of the crimes going on. And um, with our volunteer press representative, um, we presented this in uh, a a presentation of the lead prosecutor, a very Antigua woman, and her successor is uh, taking big footsteps now. <coughs> but we can't see that he'd be shying away, and now it's the biggest case. Usually they look at war crimes, which is uh, much more limited, <coughs> which are not too big or systematic. And um, do they have a, um, an obligation to accept the case? Do they have to start an investigation? Or can they make a decision what to investigate and what not to uh, investigate? 
Well, we also always have the legal principle and not the opportunity principle as we have in uh, normal fines. So if the conditions are given, they have to um, <clears throat> take action. Of course, they have to focus their work and resources. So it's probable that they take the biggest resources <coughs> and um, the proceedings are uh, to look at what you submit, um, what is submitted, and if there's not too much, they can only write letters, and then they look at the complementarity. But the basis is again what was submitted. This is why we have to submit, had to submit enough evidence, and if the lead prosecutor looks at it and says we have to open a proceedings, he has to have it approved in the pre-chamber and only if they agree then they can start it and then it will be published on the website of the ICC. What we can say is we have submitted it, we have a proof that they are looking at it because we got a confirmation in written, um, so that means they look at the admissibility of the complaint and that can take a while if we have the uh, 600 witnesses and we do see a deterrent effect in a number of countries. Uh, so <clears throat> it is already developing a uh, protective function. I have another question. Um, this Rome statute you said at the beginning, the question here is, um, is it binding for all states or only to those uh, states that explicitly agreed to it? So what's the relationship between the Rome statute and other acts of law? Well, as we've said, the Roman statute and the International Criminal Code is a binding <coughs> on the UN. It's um, the Carter and then the international law. Uh, so it is above all other international laws and other regulations and national regulations for sure. So what, how, what about non-member states? <coughs> if somebody is a member of a non-member state, wherever he is, he is within reach of the scope. And if a non-member state wants to look at something going on in their area, for example, uh, the Ukraine did it with suspected uh, Russian war crimes. There is an inter investigation by the ICC. Both countries are not members. However, it doesn't mean that uh, they look at everything, but they can only look at what the respective member country has presented to the international ICC, although uh, they have some estimation on how far to go and if the UN Safety <coughs> Council presents something then they have to look at it. It's no pre-admittance, um, so the UN Assembly has the uh, predominant uh, range here. We saw that in Libya and it's interesting in the corona bioweapon vaccines it is relevant here that you have to look at the possible offenders. <coughs> And uh, that is surely of significance here. Wherever they get the jab today, it depends who's responsible 
for the production. I don't want to uh, prejudice anybody here, but if you look at the situation of the people who should, who may be responsible, then the BioNTech CEO and the Pfizer CEO and the Moderna CEO and AstraZeneca are all from countries that are members of the Roman statute, although Pfizer and uh, Moderna are uh, home in the US and uh, the decisions are taken there. <coughs> wow. Well, um, it'll be interesting to see what comes of it. No, I don't know. Um, where you had a very extensive uh, presentation. The next guest is waiting, but um, if you have a final comment to make, first of all, I'd like to ask um, we can. We'd like to publish this, the publication included, uh, if we're allowed to put a link um, on our website, it uh, would be great if people could uh, look at this in more detail. And then I would like to give you the floor for some concluding remarks, if you wish. Yes, first, go ahead. And of course, we'd like to thank you for being able to present here in the Corona Committee. And uh, we got enough witnesses. This is something that um, we uh, owe to you personally, giving us opportunity at the time to speak here. And uh, due to the call for witnesses, uh, that uh, the investigative committee did that was a big multiplier that helped us a lot and uh, the corona committee uh, helped to write history so we are deeply grateful for that thank you <clears throat> was great to hear um, at the very beginning we uh, were in contact um, and then uh, this continued developing and i think it's really great um, what uh, gorgeous work you did there and we're happy to be to have been able to contribute to this and let's see what comes of it um, and as you say um, some effect um, in the in the morphogenetic field but also um, in um, processing all of this has been achieved already maybe we will uh, see when the tide is turning and then we uh, could see uh, prosecutions um, developed. That would be great to see. Thank you. Well, thank you to you. Well, great. Um, those were the uh, human rights uh, defenders, Zaraluza, Hasselreusing, and Volkerreusing. They did a great work. Uh, they came up with a 720-page document filed um, with the human rights of uh, the, the Court of um, International Court of Criminal Justice, uh, filing a law case there. Now I'd like to welcome our next guest. That's Leonard Winkler. Are you with us, Mr. Winkler? Hello. Yes, I'm here. Great. You're a psychologist and entrepreneur, and you were, you are a paramedic and uh, EMT. You are um, a co-founder of Conscious Love, a dating and relationship for conscious and unconscious people, and founder and initiator of Pure Fertility. You can certainly tell us a little bit more about these things. Maybe you'd like to introduce yourself in more detail now. Yes, it was all correct so far. And first of all, I'd like to start by thanking you uh, for inviting me again. It's a great honor to me to be able to speak here. Um, concerning my background, well, I think it's important. I'm very committed in all these topics for a long time. When it all started, I was at the university 2021. <clears throat> 
We spoke at the time, and February, March, I started to inform the head of my department at the university about the things that I'm going to talk about today, that people were vaccined in Kenya illegally, young girls to sterilize them, and that was uh, shown, and I warned against uh, vaccine mandates at the university, and uh, one should look at where this was going on before in other areas. So my starting point was from the beginning, <clears throat> when they started to talk about vaccines and vaccinations, not that the people would die, but that this may be about infertility, maybe in the second generation only. That was my initial um, initiation, really. And um, a friend of mine <clears throat> had the idea to start a platform, a dating platform for unvaccinated people. Um, it was Thomas's idea. And in the background, I kept on monitoring this fertility issue. I looked at all the studies that were issued because I always had the impression that something is coming up in this respect. And then um, I thought about um, preventing, uh, doing a, a sperm donors bank for unvaccinated people. I didn't want to do that for morale reasons, uh, but <clears throat> I used the platform, however, in order to um, develop these topics with uh, blog articles, especially the one that you invited me for to about the development of um, developing vaccines to um, stop fertility of people with that uh, objective. And I think that's the most important background information in order to assess whether it's possible to do this with the COVID vaccines. You don't have to wait for the uh, evidence coming up now which is present already. I have four big articles on that. And uh, <clears throat> this is the background. And uh, we are looking at the fertility, infertility issue in general, not only with respect to the vaccines. Um, I'm talking to backgrounds um, experts who are not public yet, and uh, that's how I got to it. Yes, let me uh, make a couple of comments on this. We um, just talked to two human rights defenders who told us that the sterilization infertility is a way of torture. And if you can see that there are many people where who have difficulties in getting children um, in whatever way you may think about it, uh, with uh, long waitings and doing taking actions, horrible conditions really that the people are brought to if uh, they um, want to have children and can't, uh, psychologically very stressing. And if we imagine that people who would uh, get children naturally are now subjected to this stress independent on what that means economically or for the human uh, race in total. <clears throat> we see uh, that this is taking uh, place and um, that there are drops in birth rates, be they temporary or permanent. We don't know yet. That's interesting to see. So maybe you want to elaborate on the background this may have with Kenya. I have 
heard parts of the story, but probably you know more. Yes, I presented, I started a presentation. You can upload it um, <clears throat> if you want to later on. It's got all the sources. I want to start with a little disclaimer. There's a clear drop in fertility um, in men and women for decades. Um, uh, re leading to uh, lower birth rates per woman, social reasons, uh, women being elder, older, um, being uh, sick and um, environmental toxins, uh, mobile communication and so on. So what I want to show is um, <clears throat> this is an indisputable fact that the vaccines are developed with the um, objective of fertility, although I have to say that this uh, drop that we see for decades is not based on the campaigns because there's so many actor, other factors that are evidence um, for this. And this is the case. This is the case in individual cases, as we've seen and as is uh, provable. So just to disclaim this, first of all, the drop in fertility is probably not due to the vaccines that we've had, but I'll detail on that later on. <coughs> Let me share my screen, excuse me. <coughs> Maybe I can make a comment here. We're um, on YouTube again with a new channel. I hope it's still up and running. And we've uh, adjusted it to the topic of fertility. Um, it's still up and running on YouTube. Let's see whether it still uh, stays like that. We called it Operation um, Blad um, Bubble. Um, First, because it uh, sounds like we're getting out of our bubble now. The mainstream media seem to uh, confirm what we've been saying. So if you uh, wish to make it available to friends or family, or if you uh, want to watch us there, um, if your friends and family only watch YouTube, forward it to them. Great. Can you see my main chart? Right now, it looks more like an overview of what we can see, an overview okay. screen. So let me try to set this up properly. This should be working now. Yes, but it's a little <coughs> bit too large. No, now it's fine. Good. So I have prepared them in English um, and so people can read it. Um, you'll have a respective translation. So this is about an article that I have written and I put it up on my platform, Population Reduction by Immune Contraception. So vaccines, is it a fact or a myth? And other efforts to reduce the population by developing vaccines? That's the, uh, the question I want to answer. This is the article. It's linked with the same name in the presentation. <clears throat> so just a few words on the background. What is the terminology used here? First of all, it's called birth control shot, depopulation vaccine, immune contraception, or anti-fertility vaccine. And general topics here, if you look at these, uh, 
um, a complex like greenhouse gas and so on. So these anti-fertility vaccines is everything concerned with family pummeling, uh, population control, birth control, population reduction, control, reproduction, demographic control. And these are the some of the scientific terms that you find this if you look for the literature you will find immunologic fertility regulation, immunocomproception, fertility regulation vaccines, or birth control vaccines. These are the scientific terms. And um, I looked at PubMed, uh, PubMed um, looking for these fields, search for all fields, everything. So hitting some of the uh, keywords, you find up to 10,000 um, <clears throat> matches, and if you reduce it to the titles only, you get uh, 336 titles of scientific literature, and nearly all the sources, uh, sources 80, 98% um, are from this. So you don't have to go for Freedom of Information Act uh, releases and so on. This is all publicly available literature in the medical databases where you can find this. So, who is interested in reducing the fertility? Uh, this is the WH uh, bulletin, um, which I'm going to refer to from 1987. This is a new approach to reduce control. Fertility is uh, developing vaccines that um, harm the fertility, so these are sperm antigenes, uh, reproductive hormones, ovum, sperm antigenes, and antigenes derived from embryonic fetal tissue. And following this, they talk about fertility regulation vaccines, which um, um, may be very well accepted by the general popularity of vaccinations in general. And these control a long-term fertility, can be administered by non-trained people, and can be integrated not only in family planning programs, but in other health programs as well. All of this is included in this bulletin. So the WHO has been funding these types of programs for quite a while. And then we have a different approach here, which measures what impact actions can be taken with respect to CO2 um, <clears throat> ex exhibition. And uh, uh, the point is said here is that having fewer children is the best way to reduce this. And they um, complain about this not being talked about um, the um, Canadian school books, <clears throat> and here there's clearly a recommendation that this type of information should be integrated in the school textbooks. So if people come of mature age, that they should think about getting fewer children. And there's a list of high impact actions, and by far the biggest factor is CO2 consumption is getting children 23 to 117,000 tons of CO2. Uh, Car-free life um, is the next step. So everything concerning climate narratives has a general interest in reducing the population, independent on, um, of course, they don't recommend uh, vaccinations in this case. 
the um, double, uh, the World Economic Forum. Who expects it? This is the question. Of course, there's lots of NGOs and other institutions, including the World Economic Forum. Uh, they assume that in about three decades, there's going to be a crucial moment of the 21st century where the global population will start to decline. But COVID may be the moment, but not the cause. Um, published in 2021, and why people should be interested in depopulating the planet because it is good for the climate. And uh, here, of course, they explain it with the democratic change. People can have fewer children. Both things are correct. There's more elderly people. And this is why there is a shift towards more elderly and younger people. And then they say, I know I. Um, this is out of context, this quote. They say, because soon humanity will be a lot smaller and older than it is today. This also refers to the demographic change, but it is pretty clear what they're saying here. Right. Now, I try to give a historical outline in a semi-structured way. Um, showing when it started with these publications, well, the possibility of uh, immunized experimentally against reproductive tract antigens. The first study was in 1899 uh, for animals. Um, the first experiments of this sort were carried out um, independently. Um, it was tried to identify antibodies and then develop them. And uh, there's a publication here from 1984 that the first study was published in 1899. And since then, and more particularly in the last two decades, i.e. The, the 60s and 70s, a number of papers have appeared demonstrating the blocking of fertility in, uh, in animals, including subhuman primates, after immunization with appropriate reproductive uh, system antigens. In the same publication that it says, another quote, um, given that population increase has assumed epidemic dimensions, it can be argued that the means employed in the past for combating epidemics of infectious diseases so effectively may also be serviceable for slowing the rate of population growth. So we can clearly see even the vocab being used here speaks of an epidemic um, dimension of human reproduction. I think this is quite crass. It, we can see that it's really about developing vaccines that don't have a side effect of creating infertility, but they're designed to uh, cause infertility and uh, to reduce a population growth that is um, called epidemic. What's also explicitly recommended is that these vaccines be linked to programs uh, to, um, to control communicable disease, including them into family planning programs, so that the vocab, anything to do with family planning, family planning programs, such as the antibaby uh, pill and other contraceptives, um, these vaccinations are developed and justified under this heading. 
Then there's a WHO task force that explicitly develops these kinds of um, substances from 1974 to 1981. No, uh, they uh, finance such studies over 30 years, um, and they have a reference serum um, bank uh, that they uh, finance, supported in Denmark, uh, which is to identify the various immunological causes of infertility uh, because that can be used then uh, to develop uh, appropriate substances. Now, what is such a, a vaccine to look like? The vaccine is to be capable of safely and effectively, heard of that before, inhibiting a human substance, i.e. Um, the um, reproductive uh, tract, and it is uh, to create um, sustainable effective on of immunity with at least 95% of um, effectiveness in the vaccinated population, i.e. a higher level of effectiveness than vaccinations against infectious diseases. Those are the objectives of WHO in the context of this kind of vaccination. Now, WHO um, describes uh, concrete mechanisms now which technologies uh, are to be involved here, what um, progress has been made, um, genetic engineering is mentioned here, monoclonal antibodies back in the 1980s that such vaccines are on the brink of becoming uh, feasible now, that they can actually be implemented now and administered. Here's a publication from 1991, which points out uh, that this uh, task force, WHO Task Force on Vaccines for Fertility Regulation, it actually is called that. Um, it says that um, over the past 18 years, the WHO Task Force uh, had um, supported and financed such research. And then it goes into more detail. There are vaccines. Uh, targeting both men and women. There are different technologies available there. Um, uh, there are anti-sperm vaccines, anti-oval um, vaccines. So, um, uh, vaccines that are to target uh, um, the, ov um, the, the eggs uh, or the fetus. So, um, it is an autoimmune reaction that is supposed to be triggered here. And the anti-sperm vaccines can be active both in men and in women. If Because the women, if they have these antibodies, then this can lead to the uh, sperm being incapable of uh, infertilizing the uh, egg, even though the sperm itself is healthy, but um, because the woman has this antibody, um, it still cannot fertilize the egg. Um, so that is preferred, the preferred avenue now I jump into the year 2010, where the uh, language is again uh, talking of population growth at an alarming rate, and uh, also that uh, novel methods of contraception have been introduced since the 1960s, etc. So uh, by now, I think it's not a big uh, issue anymore publicly, uh, as far as I know. WHO financing has been discontinued, even though we don't know what's going on. Um, but in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, an extreme amount of research was done here. 
Well, now I've listed some criteria here from the WHO bulletin from 1984, uh, from 87. Uh, what uh, criteria or uh, properties um, such vaccines should have? Uh, because uh, it's interesting because it's um, a similar wording as we heard in the context of COVID. It's an uh, antigen that must be unique, and I think um, that is uh, what all vaccines have in common. Then specific function, um, it has to is to have a um, specific function and should have an effectiveness level of uh, more than 95%. And this is interesting. No more than one or two injections for primary immunization are to be sufficient. And then they're talking about booster injections that should be administered no less than uh, every six to 12 months. So it's not like uh, with tetanus where you get a once-off shot um, and you're sterile forever, and um, uh, it's only temporary infertility. Um, you don't take the pill only once, but it's only temporary. That's why you need a um, booster injection every six to 12 months in order to maintain infertility. And then that um, uh, the, there must be testing for safe long-term use. The same goes for uh, the COVID jabs. Um, there were no real studies there, but the statements made really refer to a single animal test with um, um, 48 rats. So it's really frightening to see the similarities here. Well, then, what questions are unanswered, still need to be answered? That's from a publication in 1992 that is about um, the surface protein um, the egg uh, protein is a surface protein as well. What adjuvants uh, need to be added there in order to maintain a high teeter? Um, but that is achieved through the booster uh, injections, of course, and then how this contraceptive effect can be terminated again and what side effects there will be. Now, what possibilities or options are available there? Um, we can um look at reproductive hormones you can also have um, antibodies uh, that uh, turn on um, the um, the ovum or the sperm there are antigens turning on the embryonic uh, tissue so that the embryo when it is developing uh, uh, may be attacked um early on in the pregnancy now the question is is that an abortion or i don't know uh, the ins and outs of this um, We'll speak about some technologies later on in more detail that have actually been applied. With the hormones um, that uh, plays a role with women is the follicle-stimulating hormone, um, the uh, gonadotropin-releasing hormone, and the HCG. I'll get back to that later. Those are hormones that could be used uh, as a basis for development of uh, vaccines. That's all somewhat aged uh, studies already now. And then there's another study where uh, guinea pigs were uh, sterilized uh, with anti-sperm antibodies, and they were 100% sterile then. With uh, monoclonal antibodies, they uh, achieved this, and different um, anti-sperm antibodies that they developed here. That all refers to men, of course, to males, of course, um, vaccines to be applied 
in men. And what's interesting here is that uh, just a, a miniature excursus in a post-marketing study uh, published in the context of um, uh, Freedom of Act, uh, Information Act, um, uh, anti-sperm antibodies were found there. You can see it on page uh, 30 at the bottom. But we have to say that these anti-sperm antibodies are one of the causes of infertility. Um, and they may, of course, been found uh, accidentally in um, uh, test subjects. Some men have them. Naturally, it's one cause of infertility um, or lack of virility in this case. Um, but we have to find that in this study, um, these uh, antibodies were found. Then vaccines that uh, target the ovum. And um, here it says that the challenge is to elicit a uh, specific immune response that results in complete infertility. And that's not a side effect. Uh, it doesn't. It's not supposed to uh, create other side effects. And that the normal um, ovarian function is supposed to continue. So they try to avoid uh, complications such as menstrual problems, etc. Now, one specific um, vaccine would be HCG-based. Uh, vaccines or technologies. You may have heard about this, uh, what was done in Kenya there in this case. In principle, it's interesting to see that HCG, it's a hormone which is relevant for uh, feeding the uh, fertilized egg once uh, women um, conceive. Uh, and they developed antibodies targeting um, HCG, and they have been configured as carriers uh, with uh, diphtheria toxids, so um, based on diphtheria, tetanus, and cholera. So that's the basic vaccinations we all have, or most of us have. And the reason why they combine this um, is probably because pure beta HCG, this anti-HCG, has immunological tolerance. In order to overcome this, uh, tetanus is used, for example. And then it's also a very interesting side effect that you're also vaccinated against uh, tetanus. And that's the way they argue, they um, explain it. And this is what uh, the studies uh, say. It's a strategy to overcome the immunological tolerance. So this was developed back in 1976. I'll moving on here. And WHO explicitly funded these anti-HCG-based agents um, and um, the research in this context. This will be relevant later on. Now, this research went beyond animal testing with the objective of efficient contraception and family planning. Official uh, clinical phases uh, one and two were performed in Australia, Finland, Sweden, Chile, and Brazil, quite officially and legally. And now it gets interesting in Kenya, and that's the story I hinted at at the beginning. In Kenya, back in 1993, WHO announced that 
These birth control vaccines are to be integrated into family planning um, programs. And in 1993, a vaccine vaccination campaign was performed in Kenya. And in November 1993, Catholic bishops found that the young underage girls that were vaccinated there, what was strange was that they were vaccinated uh, every few months uh, against tetanus sufficiently, uh, that there were miscarriages here, and they said those are vaccines against miscarriages, and they uh, secretly uh, collected the, the empty vials that was all um, very closely watched by WHO and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And then in 2014, these vials were then examined, relatively late now, and they found that in half the vials analyzed, this beta HCG um, could be found, and WHO also handed in uh, their own uh, vials to, uh, in their own defense, and nothing was found and uh, but those that had been collected on site uh, and it was different bishops who did that they found this better hcg and this was published and uh, it showed that who uh, performed these um, uh, vaccinations these programs and that uh, a number of girls were then uh, infertile infertilized so that was proof that this vaccination a technology was not only uh, researched but also tested in the population, illegally tested in the um, uh, population. And so Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation not only have the intention but also have also shown that they're willing to perform illegal tests on um, unsuspecting populations as they did in Kenya. Now, this, these are other vaccinations, HPV vaccinations, not anti-fertility anti vaccinations. This is HPV, that is against um, uh, cervical cancer. And um, it was approved in 2006 by the FDA. Another, a second one was uh, approved the same year, I think. Now, first of all, we have to say that cervical cancer is very rare and therefore vaccination is quite questionable here. Now, at the same time, we have to say that after this vaccination campaign, the birth rate declined dramatically. From 1995 to 2006, the birth rate had actually uh, significantly increased by 8.5%. These are the number of births per 1,000 women, 108.8%. Uh, in 1995 to 118 in 2006, then the vaccine was approved, and in 20, uh, 2007 it was still 108 births, and then in 2015 it was only 104.5 births. So in other words, the birth rate not only decreased, but it decreased to the level it had um, initially with a, uh, in a, a very <coughs> close uh, temporal relationship or correlation uh, with the vaccine, just like we saw it with COVID now. I've shown it graphically here. So first the increase of the birth rate and then the decrease up until 2015. And there was a, a study by a professor from New York um, who was a statistician, I think, for financial um, aspects. So he knows how to read statistics. Uh, that's important because he analyzed the data. And this publication has been retracted, which um, often happens, frequently happens with uh, studies that criticize vaccinations and vaccines. And uh, it was claimed that 
There were uh, statistical errors, like as if this Professor Gale didn't know what he was doing. And he analyzed how many uh, children or um, were born to women vaccinated against uh, cervical cancer and how many um, uh, children uh, women had uh, who weren't vaccinated. So the um, vaccinated women had 35.3% uh, who had at least one child between 2006 and 2014, and the unvaccinated women, 61.1%. So that's a reduction of 25.8% reduction of vaccinated women uh, against unvaccinated women. Is that a child or is that a pregnancy which doesn't need to be successful necessarily? So that could have uh, had stillbirths or whatever. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. That's a good question. I would have to take a closer look at what it says. Actually, I can't really say by heart now whether they also included unsuccessful pregnancies. Well, uh, anyway, it could only increase. Uh, well, looking at whoever has a less false uh, less successful pregnancy anyway it's very fascinating to see this to see this here when i wrote pregnant here i say i just quoted this but i'm, I'm not sure now yeah, it says so at the top as well in the yeah it header. says pregnancies and females there but it's interesting i'm not sure whether this was analyzed as well because we um should expect that the a higher rate of miscarriages uh, could be expected because, and I'll get back to this later, it's about the um, functionality of the ovaries. It seems to be in, affected by the uh, vaccinations. There are different case studies published in the best uh, medical journals, British Medical Journal, etc., um, Medical Journal of Reproductive Immunology, etc., and, it, and uh, it was found there in individual cases that these women um, subsequent to the HPV vaccination, suffered a primary malfunction of the ovaries. And that this they, they actually confirmed that there's a correlation with the uh, HPV vaccination. And it's always affecting young girls because this vaccination is recommended from, I think, 14 or 16 years on, I'm not sure. So we can't really say this is the vaccination in order to reduce fertility, at least officially not. But I don't know what the mechanism is and whether there is any studies on that background um, concerning the technologies that I mentioned before, which may have been deployed. There may be studies on this, but I don't know this at the moment. <clears throat> and just a brief summary since 1899 there were efforts made in this direction the who explicitly started with uh, anti-sperm vaccinations in uh, 72 looking at um, talking about 95 percent effectiveness and booster vaccinations repeated every six to 12 months to keep up the teeter uh, it's uh, examined, researched, and funded, and illegally tested on the population. So there is reason to suspect that it has been carried out. 
in other parts of the population, and there seems to be a statistical correlation here. And of course, there's a great interest and uh, to reduce the population and these uh, vaccination programs are to be combined with family planning programs and uh, vaccination programs to reduce um, pandemics. That would nicely square in with what we've seen in terms of the corona COVID pandemic. And the question now, whether these injections uh, are intended to serve as a birth control instrument in order to um, ar arrive at sterilizing effects, reducing the population. We can't 100% say so now at the point in time, but this hypothesis is, however, consistent with the need expressed by the WHO, expressed as early as uh, 1987, um, that family planning, planning programs should be uh, combined with programs to control communicable diseases. And the general subject concerning the mRNA vaccinations and the infertility effects, I have published four um, very detailed articles on this with many sources and evidence for men and women. It's a very complete collection. And um, if you read it, you could arrive at the conclusion on the published literature that um, there are effects on fertility. The latest article, which I added here at the bottom, is a uh, study which will be published soon. I wrote the blog article on it, but I can only publish it after the study is out. I was able to read it, and I hope it's going to be out soon. And then I will release and publish my blog article as well, talking about um, infertility effect on men and an overview. <clears throat> if you're interested, uh, go to my website, purefertility.com, subscribe to the newsletter or to my Telegram channel, and you'll be informed as soon as the new article is out. That's it on my behalf. Great, uh, quite informative. <laughs> well, we unfortunately have the next uh, guest already waiting who has a time limit at the end, but I uh, would like to ask a couple of questions. I don't know um, if um, Volker has a question, um, Wolfgang has a question, whether we can hear us, I don't know. Yes, yes, you can. Hello. Um, I discussed with Mike Eden these uh, CGTN antibodies and the similarity of the spike proteins with the CCTN. Um, if there is an antibody developed against the spikes, there may be a risk of uh, antigenes developed uh, against this um, substance, which is important for pregnancy. Is there any literature on that? Do you know about that? Yes, I'm not sure if I have the latest version here. I'll let me open it just a moment. Uh, I did 
um, instigated by you. Um, thanks for that. Um, I, I became aware of this. Uh, to this appeal uh, that you launched together with Mike Eden, and there's this uh, Singaporean study that I took a close look at. I hope I'll be able to show it here now. And in a Petri dish, they tested whether these antibodies target the lecithin, um, lecithin uh, and the study in Singapore uh, found that there is no effect, uh, but if you the raw data, well, they didn't publish the raw data, but they have this graph that they included in the annex. Let me just show it to you. Here you can see it. Can you see it now? Yes. This graph. So you can see the SARS-CoV-2 reaction, and on the right, uh, you can see the antisensitin um effect and they say there's no effect um, the reason being that they put a threshold at point nine here um, and you can see the reaction here day one days one through four where they added the antibodies or the vaccination and uh, days four to five and you can see it increases it's uh, both nearly fourfold increased um, so they zero as values from zero to point two and then they go up to nearly point six on uh, days one through four and then they go down again and if you compare the uh, points in time that you measure it at uh, which you would normally do you would say uh, yes there's an effect and i'm pretty sure that it would be significantly sig um, significant you can estimate it, and the reason why they say is uh, that there's no effect is that they uh, established this arbitrary threshold here, um, and it comes from the ELISA test that they perform. And in the text, they say themselves that there is no clinical validation for threshold values uh, or for effects that you measure with this test, what clinical relevance it has. That's why they established this arbitrary threshold and instead of comparing uh, these values here where they would have definitely found that there's a significant increase they said no there wasn't any because it would have had to cross this threshold which is completely pointless actually and that's the basis for their statement being made here i think there is a second study well you can see it here it's uh, six to seven weeks that they monitored it so d is days and then it's weeks so it's uh, more persistent as well exactly yes yes it's definitely increased and i would say the numbers of measurements here is one eight ten thirteen measurements here right that's a small sample of course but nevertheless but um, with that significance one should look in more detail i think it can't be too difficult uh, to do this so that's something for scientists to look at this in more detail we've got uh, many uh, subjects as well who could participate yes, we do and i don't know why they didn't uh, go into more detail there the interesting thing is the argument that they used at the time 
Uh, and that uh, this could be a good justification of what we see because the placenta forming gene is suppressed, if I understood that right. So the placenta can expand. But if the placenta has started forming because the woman is pregnant already, um, it would mean that if there is such an immune reaction, that the placenta doesn't uh, continue developing and then this should lead to a miscarriage and that is exactly what we can see um, observed with women uh, with the temporal correlation so that could be one explanation this mechanism it's a complicated mechanism if uh, the egg um, nests uh, and it's not uh, rejected and that the system can uh, start producing the placenta and how long it takes place and how subject it is uh, susceptible it is to disturbances is something I don't know really. I'm sure it's a complex process. I have another question of <laughs> clarification. You mentioned that uh, there are effects uh, if men are immunovaccinated, so anthroconceptive vaccinated, whatever it's called, that this may also affect uh, the fertility of women, that it kind of uh, is uh, passed on to them like uh, a kind of shedding. Did I understand that correctly? Well, I don't know if that takes place. It's um, inverse, really. You talk about anti-sperm uh, bodies that um, attack the um, development of the sperm cells and this could be given to women as well if I give them to men of course the sperms are um, damaged if I give it to women um, it works as well the men produce um, fertile sperms but then in the woman Yes, exactly. In in the woman's body, there will be antibodies, and the recommendation seems to be rather to apply it in women because that seems to lead to fewer complications. So the men <clears throat> can continue replicating, and the women won't have any children anymore. Yeah, that's because that's of called, uh, uh, equal rights. Yeah, it's madness, really. Um, if you want to participate in that kind of experiment, or well go ahead but uh, i think i'm um, it's very critical very difficult but of course if this is done covert like in kenya um applied to people without uh, knowing it we have organizations promoting family planning um working throughout the world um, uh, moving into the villages, um, I went on a trip to Ethiopia at some stage. I met the um, then health minister there, um, and I went to the south of Ethiopia at the time uh, to a village where the delegation that I participated, that was part of, was presented um, with a uh, family planning program that was also an AIDS prevention program. That was a program that probably had its uh, sponsors with certain plans. I didn't uh, see through it at the time, but they were approaching young people. They established um, soccer clubs that were financed and they made their own newspapers and they were uh, proud of uh, all the things they knew about ov uh, ova and uh, sperms. 
And it was all um, financed. It was a bit strange uh, in that village. And I also saw that in public health, what I used to learn was that in poor societies, there were always many children and um, that there was a high child mortality. But then when people earn more money when they did better, uh, when they had their own flats, uh, when civilization took hold there and they started um, enjoying other things than raising children, that uh, then suddenly the number of uh, children would dramatically decrease uh, automatically. In rich countries, the number of children is much lower and the birth rates are much lower uh, than in poor countries. So in other words, the best birth control that was uh, pre all of this was to make sure that people have a good life. And then um, having children is oftentimes a bother. So many people want other things. They don't want to um, look after children all their lives long. But that is something that automatically uh, developed. I don't know if that research is still around today. This has all been distorted by all these measures the artificial measures by advertising and all the birth control things that are um, that people are talked into uh, oftentimes and this includes this chinese one child policy this long period during which the chinese uh, were not allowed to have more than one child and then they suddenly found that oh we're all uh, growing old we're alone nobody's looking after us anymore and so they relaxed this policy again and they uh, allowed these natural processes, these self-regulating processes uh, to, to, to take hold again. And I think there are many things that are blind to what nature can organize itself. Yes, it's clearly nature on one side. And uh, the other point is this human development index looking at the life standard. I learned that in my geography lessons at school, exactly this that um, the more rich the countries are, the lower the birth rates are. And uh, so reasons for this uh, birth rate, uh, children per woman, why that drops in the Western countries, uh, Western Europe below um, 1.2, so that's the maintenance rate. Uh, the main reason being the age of the woman and the social reasons. Uh, societal standards which are changed and it's not on vogue to have so many children so and uh, all these programs don't play a role <clears throat> and i learned that in school that's the main reason the life standard and we could discuss of course whether it makes sense to have so many people on the planet or not although i have information that theoretically if we lived in a different way we could have many more people be that sensible or not uh, but it's quite clear if we say we want to reduce the population or the population to decline what should simply share the uh, wealth to a few percentage points towards India and Africa, and the uh, <clears throat> birth rates would drop simply because the children are not needed as insurance for life of the parents. And uh, ethically, I think that would be the most, much better approach. And uh, that's what I learned in school still at the time. Yes, well, <clears throat> unfortunately, 
Now we're really a bit under uh, pressure of time because of the next uh, guest, Mr. Winkler. Um, thank you very much. I find it very fascinating to see these um, connections there. We have to keep a, a close eye on this. The studies that are coming down the line, and of course, we'll, um, can you'll um, monitor this very closely um, at um, Pure Fertility. What's the exact uh, address? It's uh, pure-fertility.com. Okay, so you can um, keep uh, abreast there, and we'll stay in contact, of course, to see what uh, comes down, what uh, transpires um, going forward. And it will be interesting also to see uh, the side effects. We never talked about those so much. Maybe we could uh, discuss that at some other stage. We shouldn't do that now, maybe some other time, because we are under pressure of time now. But I would like to um, uh, see that. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much uh, for the great work. Um, um, keep up the good work. We probably will. Bye-bye. Okay, goodbye. So that was uh, Leonard Winkler, a psychologist who looked in more detail at these uh, efforts to um, offer people uh, the option of uh, getting vaccinations uh, to be um, made infertile um, temporarily and evidence that this has already been done um, without consent um, um, in some places already. Now we have a guest where I will have to go back to the English language again now. Um, Alexandra Sasha Latipova, are you with us? Uh, yes, hi, Vivian. Hello, nice to see you again. Nice yeah, let, to see you. Um, let, me just, let me just say a few words to your background. So you're a pharmaceutical and medical device entrepreneur, and you have um, most of your professional experience in pharma and medical industries with specific focus on development, validation, regulatory acceptance, and commercialization of new clinical technologies. And you had the investigative um, group team Enigma. That sounds very mysterious, but yeah, so it's great. Maybe if you would like to add a few um, things to your background. Uh, yes, so I spent most of my career, I, I don't work um, full-time, although I, I work full-time for free now, um, but, uh, I, you know, I retired a few years ago from uh, pharmaceutical research and development industry, and uh, all this work is my independent work with my colleagues. I, I do have a lot of collaborators all over the world now, um, and, uh, you know, so my experience in pharma was in clinical uh, trials, running clinical trials as a contractor for many pharma companies, including Pfizer. And so my, you know, that, that uh, you know, that's why I, I understand the regulatory requirements, uh, what is uh, expected by the regulators from something that is really approved as a safe and effective medicine, and definitely these products are not. And so that, that led me, you know, that knowledge and understanding and seeing all these um, flagrant violations of uh, regulatory frameworks all over the world, by the way, not just by FDA, but EMA in Europe, uh, TGA in Australia, Health Canada, everywhere. Uh, so they, they all simultaneously violated all their own rules. And, uh, you know, that, that was very puzzling. So that led me to investigate this. And, and now I am also collaborating with the legal researcher, Catherine Watt, 
uh, and a few other attorneys and um, uh, you know other people, data analysts, and uh, the, you know this this kind of led us to build the complete picture of the crime uh, as it's being committed, the pseudo legal structure that they built for themselves, and how they're doing it exactly, who is doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fantastic. So we talked um, in a previous session about the um, all the the evidence that points to the um, to the involvement of the the military industrial complex, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And I think you have some new information on that topic as well. Um, yes, I'm, I'm not sure how much of it is, is really, really new. Um, I, I don't recall <laughs> what we covered before, but um, yes, I can briefly walk through the, you know, what's what's going on as far as the structure, and as, especially for those people who haven't heard the previous session, um, and I, I can answer some questions. And also, I believe I was asked to comment on this, you know, Pfizer Gate yes. uh, uh, Project Veritas. <laughs> That would be great as well. Uh, I mean, wherever you would like to spend more time because you are limited in your um, yeah, I, time yeah, options I have to, right now. Yeah, so I can, you know, I can talk about briefly about Project Veritas, mm -hmm. is, you know, since this is sort of uh, just came up. Um, you know, I, I watched the videos, I watched the, also the follow-up, the, you know, the, the, the reveal. Um, and the, there are interesting things here. So uh, in the first video, when, when, you know, this guy is bragging on the date, about Pfizer, uh, you know, saying that Pfizer is mutating viruses that they're using, and when asked whether this is gain of function, he says, "Oh no, no, it's it's called directed evolution." I mean, they they give different names to same things, um, and so it's directed evolution, and you know, we we we're mutating viruses to predict, you know, what's going to happen basically and build vaccines for this. Now. Um, you know, when I when I heard that, I I, I know I know this was very familiar, uh, uh, very familiar language to me, because this is, by the way, you know, okay, it, it, I applaud Project Veritas for for recording it like this, but it's actually not secret. It's plastered all over, uh, Barda, DARPA, NIH, DOD. Uh, industry day. Uh, I mean, they presented publicly everywhere in all of their documents. Uh, Peter Daszak, Ralph Barrick, they use similar language. They all talk about this. Uh, and uh, so it's not it's not secret at all. It's out in the public. You just have to pay attention. Now, why they're doing it? Um, they're doing it to, uh, to, to drive this as part of propaganda and militarized propaganda, uh, fifth generation warfare. Uh, where they uh, extensively lie to people, uh, drive them into fear with various uh, techniques used uh, by military intel intelligence, uh, and very sophisticated, uh, and obviously through capture of all the mainstream media so that they can, you know, mockingbird exercise drive the same message. But it is propaganda. Um, so it's designed to make people fearful and believe that there is, first of all, such a thing as, you know, making viruses more lethal and more transmissible at the same time. And, and this is not possible to do. It's against the laws of nature. It's not possible to do this, but they want you to believe this. That's why they design all these things in, in media stories, all sorts of scientific clickbait that they put out. For example, I, I brought up example of more recently, maybe a few months ago, there was another, you know, oh my God, Boston University is mutating viruses. Same thing, same thing. 
a study came out from Boston University saying that they've concocted this part of SARS-CoV-2 and this part of something else, and they put it together and they made a, a virus that killed 80% of the mice. Again, everybody lost their heads all over the place, were crying, oh my God, what are they doing? This is so dangerous. Uh, I assure not, nothing dangerous was produced in that Boston University study. What was dangerous is that is that propaganda clickbait bait that they made, you know, seemingly prestigious university engaging in this. Um, yeah, Wolfgang, you, you're muted. Wolfgang, you're muted. Yes, even what Mr. van den Bosch told us, that there will be more dangerous viruses afterwards when we start using the vaccination is a big, big nonsense. And it's a frightening <laughs> story. It is. A, I it was is suspicious true. about that from the beginning, and I'm still. I will never be successful. That kills its host. Exactly. So, so, uh, so that's that's part of the scary, scary stories. So that to drive people into fear, and the main goal of this is that is that you you know they're saying, okay, well, yeah. So now we are making these dangerous concoctions because. Well, you know, every, any PhD student can do it, and uh, if we don't do it, then our enemies will do it, and they will unleash these scary viruses on us, so we need to do it defensively. That's the biggest, uh, I, I don't want to use bad words, but it, this is the biggest lie propagated by our government and now global governments worldwide. They do it so that they can go and to, to our Congress, appropriate trillions for defensive, predictive, pandemic preparedness, and invest in all these technologies that are designed to remove human rights. Uh, the, the, the biometrics, biosecurity state, tracing, quarantines. Now they're, they're writing this language into the international health regulations saying that yes. if there is a potential for a potential planned pandemic where maybe you will be pre-symptomatic and pre-transmission, but we can predict that this thing will evolve, then you should go to quarantine camp or your children. So and, and and I am serious. This is this is a very serious matter because they are going to write this into international laws, and all of our governments already eagerly uh, running to WHO to give up our rights, which we never gave them the right to give up. Um, so that's that's what's going on. That's why this story is designed. That's why that's why this guy fed the story to Project Veritas. I'm glad Project Veritas recorded it so that it's now in public domain. We can discuss it. Now, in the in the second, and by the way, so so he's also saying in the video, the, oh, we're going to uh, use this technique as as passing animals, uh, passing through animals. You know, we infect one animal and then we we pass them through, and that that creates a dangerous virus. It doesn't. All it does is attenuates viruses to nothing. This is how it works in nature. It will go from if if it infects you know uh, anybody, then the next person is less less um, uh, less symptomatic, less uh, severe, and so forth, and, and it attenuates to nothing. That's why all pandemics extinguish themselves. This is the basic mechanism. So so he says we're going to do this animal passage, which is a long-standing technique. They've been using it for maybe I don't know 60, 70 years now, and it never produces anything. That's right. Uh, and and then uh, in Pfizer themselves in their own preclinical studies for uh, for their COVID so-called vaccine, they could not infect their animals. None of their monkeys 
got COVID, not the vaccinated ones, not the unvaccinated ones, even though they were all sprayed directly into nose and throat with the virus preparation. And, uh, you know, so, so the, they, they know that they can't do animal to animal transmission. That, that never works in their experiments. So they directly spray them and they still couldn't make them sick. So what but, are they talking you know, about? No. You know, the, there is a, the director, he was, who was in almost the same position as this guy was Mike Eden before. And do you think that the, the policy of, of Pfizer changed so much that they have forgotten so much? Or do you think, I don't know, I cannot explain it. You know, there is one director who tells us something and there is the other director of the same brand who tells us this now. So uh, I my picture now is, uh, it's very cautious. Well, it's so, uh, you know, my experience was also with people when I worked with Pfizer, my experience was more working with with people like Mike Eden, you know, very experienced, very, very smart, know, know what their toxicologists, drug designers, chemists who could who knew themselves how to design drugs, who knew themselves how to run a clinical experiment, who did science in the lab before they went to Pfizer, who, you know, so they could ask the, the good scientific questions. And if you were trying to pull something like this on them, it wouldn't fly. So mm -hmm. uh, even, you know, around that time, 2008, 2009, Pfizer started actively getting rid of people like that. They provided early retirement benefits for them to, to quit. And, uh, you know, then they hired people like this guy. Well, it turns out in the second video uh, that he is not even a Pfizer employee. It's, he seemed, It seems that he is a hmm. contractor placed by the Boston Consulting Group. Pfizer, <laughs> which is, which is, you know, yet another, so Pfizer now outsources all of their science. That's why I said, you know, Pfizer is not doing anything in their labs. They don't have any labs. They outsource all of this. And, uh, and, uh, and now they also outsource staff. Uh, so uh, James O'Keefe put out a tweet saying that this, this person is both Boston Consulting and, and Pfizer. Uh, and I found uh, Boston Consulting Group's federal contract from DOD for COVID countermeasures. So this person is Boston Consulting and Pfizer placed there uh, by Boston Consulting Group under DOD contract. So DOD placed him there. I think and, it's uh, a very it's a very clever uh, uh, strategy of a, such a such a firm when they reduce the the people who know because mm -hmm. the the risk of whistleblowers is too big when it's a big when 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 you have many people involved so you better source it out and pay money for those who tell things you want to be told mm -hmm. yes exactly and also outsource everything to contractors and the contractors then commit fraud on behalf of Pfizer and Pfizer executives have plausible deniability that oh you know we we didn't we didn't do anything it's it's them so they can always point to a smaller company that will take yes. fall versus you know what they're doing you know even even if you are if you belong to a mafia to a criminal organization this organization has to watch out that there is no corruption within mm -hmm. they have to fight corruption the mafia has to fight corruption and uh, this corruption has nothing to do with with good or bad corruption has to do with the organization that wants to be successful. And if this organization is a criminal organization, they fight corruption too. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. 
So that's uh, you know that 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 covers Project Veritas. Uh, the you know I, I I advise people not to buy the stories of scary viruses that will be engineered by our enemies, and therefore the government needs to protect you. Um, that that that's just it's just propaganda in order for you to vote for or essentially support all these um, measures that they want to take to put the world into lockdown again and uh, remove all of our rights. Uh, it has nothing to do with actually what they're doing, what the, what pathogens they're creating. They are creating pathogens in the lab, but uh, you know, you could, you can make biochemical weapons. Uh, are they are they viruses that are super dangerous and transmissive? No, they, they're different things, uh, including biologicals and chemicals and other, could be other things, uh, radiological as well combinations of things, but it's not what they're advertising everywhere as a, you know, virus. Um, so that, that's what I, you know, want to, want people to take away from this. Um, the, as far as my presentation, let me see, you know, yeah, I have about half an hour. Uh, I'll try to, okay, can I share? I, uh, oh yeah, I can share the screen, okay. And, uh, Uh, yes, let me go to to this. So uh, yes, I, I wanted to briefly cover the uh, what we call pseudo legal structure of this crime. And this is based on the US, but we're, we're now seeing similar structural mechanisms used in other countries, uh, not just the US. Um, so first of all, uh, this is based on uh, Catherine Watt research from, uh, she publishes on Bailiwick News, uh, it's a substack. I highly recommend people to read it. Um, and uh, so she covered, she uncovered a long legal history of this crime, the pre-planning that went over decades actually for something like this. Uh, so they always have, it, have some kind of a strategy like this in their back pocket. And this was a very key strategy that's being implemented. So the, the legal cage or pseudo legal structure that's used here consists of three main elements. Uh, the first one is the use of emergency use authorization very, very extensively. So it was originally put in place in 97 as a limited method to provide uh, medicines fast to you know, severe situations like terminal cancer with no other treatment options. It's very, very important criteria is that there are no other treatment options. And in that case, uh, the FDA can issue temporary emergency use authorization uh, for something that seems to be you know, uh, very beneficial, but doesn't have all the complete data, but only used for very severe, usually terminal uh, conditions where there are no other options. Now today, this, this is extremely perverted and, and uh, now they use this emergency use for everything. So recently there's been about 600 approvals or emergency use authorizations in this COVID framework, that's nonsense, that's ridiculous. It, uh, just for, for reference, in the previous normal years, uh, 40 to 50 new approved, fully approved products from FDA was considered a successful year, like 40 to 50 a year. Now we have 600 emergency authorized. It means, you know, there's absolute mayhem, okay? Uh, then uh, the, another very important uh, piece of uh, uh, regulations that is used here is this other transaction authority, OTA. So uh, this was used since the 60s actually, it was more recently uh, amended under Obama. 
and this enables to contract uh, without following regulations, uh, without following federal uh, contracting regulations and other regulations. So a, lo a lot of federal agencies are now using this mechanism, and especially DOD is, is uh, a big user of this mechanism of other transaction authority, and uh, they uh, they can order uh, uh, products from otherwise regulated industries without following any regulations, and also hide IP and 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 a lot of secrecy and don't have to report to Congress on it. So it's it's you know they love it of course, and they order typically weapons uh, from weapons. Um, uh, contractors using this mechanism and for COVID specifically they, they used all of the contracts went through this mechanism so they're all other transaction authority and uh, they order military prototypes through this mechanism from pharma and then finally all of this is uh, put in place under public health emergency so that's why it was very important for them to declare public health emergency uh, which in the U.S. they declared right after WHO announced it uh, and WHO announced that obviously on, based on no data, based on 40 cases in 8 billion people in the world, that's nonsense, right? That's ridiculous. We know that some, some US states like Ohio, for example, announced their public health emergency based on three cases. And it's a large state. It's a very large state, you know, large population. So they have three cases and they go into public health emergency. So the same in the US, they go into public health emergency. This gives this this unleashes all these extraordinary powers. So like now normal constitution doesn't work. This is how they suspend the constitution. And now we have dictatorial power assigned to HHS, which is merged with Department of Defense under executive branch. So executive branch usurps power, gives it to HHS and DOD under public health emergency. And then of course we have this uh, PrEP Act that comes into place as well to, to remove liability from all of these actors. Um, so uh, so we talked about other transactions authority. I'll, I'll show, I'll, I'll talk about contracts more. Um, so uh, yes, as I said, this is uh, used by 11 government agencies and DOD is a very large user of it. So I'm gonna skip quickly over this. So what's important is that uh, th this is this describes military prototype countermeasures. They use very vague language. It's not defined at all. Uh, pretty much anything can be a countermeasure, and anything can be a prototype. And uh, uh, so here's what this um, legislation about other transaction authority says: is that uh, you know Department of Defense may order uh, prototypes, um, enhancing the mission supporting platform systems, uh, anything the Department of Defense needs, system components, materials. So this is extremely vague language. It's a lot of words, but they say nothing. They just say it's stuff the Department of Defense needs, then we can order it under the OTA. So they give themselves complete flexibility. And of course, you can hide weapons in this very uh, vague language, and they frequently do. They, they order uh, weapons under the same frameworks, and they order, you know, helicopters, machine guns, uh, Navy carriers, uh, or just metalworking, or you know, whatever structures, buildings, IT systems, anything can be put into this very uh, vague language. Uh, another important, um, sorry, there's a lot of text here, but this is just copied from uh, U.S. Um, U.S. Code. Uh, and there's this, this very, again, uh, very critical piece of information here. So these countermeasures that Department of Defense orders under OTA, how are they deployed? 
Well, they're deployed apparently based on the HHS secretary's sole discretion. And they're not required to meet any standards. So the, the biggest lie sold to the American public and people worldwide was that these vaccines were rigorously clinical trialed and reviewed and approved by the FDA or EMA or other regulatory authority. Yeah, but here it's the lie is that none of that is necessary. It says if available. So if they never did those clinical trials, it would still be the same. So the clinical trials didn't have any impact on the decision of the secretary to deploy these weapons. The, the secretary was planning to deploy them regardless. They just, you know, Pfizer and FDA went and performed this theatrical performance that's called clinical trial, which was full of fraud, but nobody cared. Uh, and, uh, you know, then they then they told the public that everything is great and it was uh, rigorously reviewed and approved when the, this had no impact. So here the criteria is if the if HHS secretary thinks so, that they may be effective, then he can deploy them on everyone. And uh, this decision does need, doesn't need to be reviewed ever. He never has to reconsider. He never has to consider additional data. Uh, and there are no criteria other than, you know, the Congress needs to act to undo public health emergency. And that's that's basically what we're recommending everyone is to get in touch with your legislators and educate them on this or put them on notice if they know uh, and are complicit. So um, that's so that's that's my point here. So that's how they deploy. By the way, uh, uh, UK uh, MHRA just confirmed this same thing. Uh, based on FOIA request, they replied that there is no delegation of authority to MHRA, which is the regulator uh, in in the in the United Kingdom, to review and approve these medicines. So they had they had the exact same mechanism. The health secretary, probably Matt Hancock, although he's pointing finger at somebody else now, um, uh, they just deployed them without any input or delegation of authority to MHRA who, who played no role other than ceremonial and to convince the public that everything was actually reviewed and approved. Uh, so, and a very critical piece of, uh, of the same code says that uh, use of EUA countermeasures is not a clinical investigation. And that again, just confirms that the regulators, the, the, the uh, uh, FDA, MA, MHRA, Health Canada have no impact at all on these products and have no regulatory authority over them because under public health emergency, these EUA countermeasures cannot be clinical, clinical investigational products. So that just takes them out of the jurisdiction of FDA and EMA and puts it into a military space. Um, so they're not pharmaceutical products. Uh, we uh, strongly believe that these are biological weapons. In fact, this class of so-called medicine is designated as a class of biological weapon and has been since at least um, 1997 uh, by various uh, U.S. military reports, academic reports, books. Um, so it's also wide in the open gene therapy as a weapon has been, this concept has been around since at least 1997. Uh, and uh, so, uh, so we we know that they don't regulate. Um, neither does EMA. I'm going to skip this. So let's go to the organizational structure of the crime. 
in the US, uh, they, this again, this was in public domain, but media, of course, ignored it, didn't find it interesting to report on. Uh, National Security Council uh, was set in charge of COVID policy. National Security Council is not a health regulator, and this, this is very unusual to put them in charge of what is supposed to be a health event. So we're told this is health event, yet US government gears up to it as if it's war. Uh, they put National Security Council in charge. It's an advisory body to the President of the United States. It consists mostly of, as you see, defense and intelligence heads does not have any house um, regulatory representatives on it. Um, so what are they doing? Uh, here, here's a document that designates them, National Security Council, into the decisional role to decide for all COVID policy. And HHS is not even a lead federal agency, which is FEMA is another you know, figurehead, uh, but HHS is involved heavily in information uh, management meaning well in propaganda because they're they're play acting as if they're regulating this um so that's that's from the uh, again official government document of pandemic response uh operation warp speed obviously was advertised to everyone as a collaborative effort between hhs and dod to develop uh um you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a government entity to develop uh, pharmaceuticals and vaccines, right? So that's what they advertised. Now, in their own documents, it's a little bit different. It's not just a collaborative effort. We see here, this is an um, organizational chart uh, of Operation Warp Speed presented at the Vaccines and Related Biologicals Advisory Committee meeting in October of uh, uh, 2020. And in their own document, they're saying that Department of Defense is actually in charge of it. It's it's the chief operating officer, and HHS is an advisor. Okay, so so that's that's different. So it's just collaboration. It's DoD is in charge. We see a clear line of command. Uh, here we have uh, uh, the top part of the organizational structure is this one. This is all the executive functions. And um, as you can see, these are the functions that pretty much everything. So we have uh, clinical trials, design, plans, operations, analysis, supply production and distribution, manufacturing, uh, infrastructure, security, personnel, legislative affairs. So they're interacting with Congress on behalf of this operation. And uh, uh, the uh, finance, obviously, and Office of General Counsel. Office of General Counsel for this operation is Department of Justice. So when, when uh, remember that uh, instance when uh, Pfizer or FDA, uh, FDA wanted to hide data from clinical trial for, for Pfizer for 75 years, and Aaron Siri uh, and, and ICANN were arguing in court to release the data, which was, they were successful. Um, well, he was arguing against Department of Justice lawyers, and Pfizer lawyers were not even in the room. So when people say, oh, it's, you know, it's commercial interest of Pfizer, well, why is US government and Department of Justice defending commercial interests of Pfizer? Everyone should ask that question because it's not really Pfizer's commercial interest, is it? Um, anyway, so, so data was released, um, but that's a, that's a very good indicator of who is in charge. Now, this part, uh, this is third level down uh, includes all the pharmas and medical device. And there's like hundreds of companies here because um, it's not just the vaccines that were ordered through this mechanism. It's everything, everything, including tests and monoclonal antibodies and 
masks, even uh, in staffing and all sorts of things. A tremendous amount of money went into this. Uh, and of course, farmers are fulfilling these orders very happily, and they get a lot of money to shut up and follow the orders, and that's exactly what they're doing. And uh, this does not absolve pharma, by the way. I'm not saying you shouldn't prosecute pharma. Of course you should. They're criminals. They're obviously in collusion here. Uh, and uh, they're responsible for deaths and injuries of uh, millions of people. So they should be prosecuted. They should be investigated. But uh, let's not forget the entire organization, because if we forget the entire organization, they will do it again and again and again. You know, they'll continue doing the same thing. So uh, the question is, who is really manufacturing these, um, these injections and other products? Well, uh, again, this is from uh, their own their own presentation by Operation Warp Speed and BARDA. BARDA is Biomedical Advanced Research Development Authority of the US government. I'll, I'll talk to them about them a little bit later, but uh, here's their own presentation. They're saying we have vaccine supporting efforts on the right-hand side. Uh, and then on the left-hand side, they, they, they're calling this vaccines. So what, what they call vaccine supporting efforts is the real manufacturing infrastructure, which has been put in place. And this is based on the contracts that are available for public uh, review now, uh, partially reducted. Uh, but there are hundreds of these contracts and uh, hundreds of entities also that they have established the Department of Defense established um, contracting relationships with and gave them uh, contracts to build out these facilities for manufacturing of biologicals and vaccines uh, and all this uh, supply and all the infrastructure because you have to have it's a very, very complex manufacturing It's just as complex as making new cars or new airplanes and involves just as many moving parts, uh, suppliers, subcontractors, systems, processes, everything needs to be in place. So it's it's nonsense what they were telling us before that, oh, you know, all of this was built up in a, you know, just a couple of months. That's not true. It was built up for years. They called it in their contracts pan-influenza vaccine, which is, you know, what is it? It's just a, you know, cover name. Uh, and then in 2020, they simply called them all, Department of Defense did, uh, on February 4th, 2020, Department of Defense called all of, their, all of these guys and said switch over to COVID. Um, so all of this infrastructure was in place, was switched over to COVID. Then they brought this other people on the left-hand side and they're, they're the cover they're providing. So they're doing some parts of it and they have had some contracts before, but they cannot do all of it without this supporting infrastructure. So uh, they're really covered. So they brought them in and uh, gave them contracts, which, uh, by the way, they tell a lot of truths in these presentations, if you read the words carefully, because all of these things on the left say demo. Department of Defense put a demonstration of large-scale manufacturing, and the manufacturing is really happening on the right-hand side. Uh, and uh, here's BARDA, uh, which I said it's, it's Advanced uh, Research and Development Authority that you know represents itself as a government uh, funding entity, R&D support entity, technical support for things that are that don't make sense for the public sector because they're too niche. Uh, but the government can make the market here and give them funding to do these things. Well. Um, all right, so they said that uh, we're going to accelerate this boring and long research and development process 
which takes years and takes, you know, seven to 10 years for a good vaccine. So we're just gonna make it in a couple of months. And we're going to innovate here, of course, because we're the government, we're going to innovate by breaking the law. So what they're saying is uh, we're going to do large scale manufacturing in parallel with clinical trials. Well, this is exactly why we have FDA and we have had FDA for, you know, or versions of FDA for hundred years now. That's exactly why we have them in place, because what they're proposing here to do is really mass poisoning people, because you cannot do a large scale manufacturing if you haven't tested the safety of the product. And specifically with Pfizer, we know for a fact they have manufactured a gigantic uh, number of their of their vials um, around uh, accounting for around 30 million doses before any clinical trial was completed. And uh, it's it set in the warehouse and then was shipped all over the world and resulted in thousands of deaths and, uh, you know, probably close to a million of injuries all over the world. So that's exactly what they did. Because Barda, you know, they're geniuses, they're part of the government, and the rules are only for peons in the private sector, that we have to follow them. But us in the government, we're, we're just so much smarter and we can innovate this way. So that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's all they're doing. They're just manufacturing without any testing. And all these clinical trials, as I said, they were theater and, you know, inconsequential. Uh, nobody was going to make any decisions based on them. The decision was already made. Uh, also, BARDA uh, assumes the regulatory role for these products, which is a, it, it, there's no act of Congress in the United States that I'm aware of that transferred the regulatory responsibility from the FDA to BARDA, yet BARDA claims here in the public presentation that they have uh, done product acceptance testing for all of the vaccines and all of the therapeutics, and also they're regulating industry for somehow, I don't understand why. And, uh, you know, doing something about good manufacturing practices, although we know that none of them are being followed here. So that's another big question. Why are these guys, it's a funding entity, like some sort of a, a government accelerator is all of a sudden assuming the role of the regulator for pharmaceuticals. And then um, finally, I can briefly talk about the money flow. Um, the, as I said, the, the infrastructure that the Department of Defense through BARDA and DARPA and other entities have built out is gigantic. They basically took over the entire pharmaceutical industry in the United States and largely internationally. You can see how many companies are on their payroll now and follow their orders. Um, this has been going on for years and has increased over time. Uh, the, specifically for the COVID uh, COVID response, uh, as you can see, this, these are all their own slides. They're claiming that they, uh, you know, printed trillions of dollars, as US government did, threw it from helicopters in quantities of half a billion to two a billion to these various companies uh, and academic institutions. And then uh, on the left-hand side, again, what did they order with this with these billions of dollars? Well, a whole bunch of demonstrations. A demonstration is fake by definition. And they're very, very precise in their language, calling it demonstration, or even on the slides, PowerPoint. Um, and yeah, the, this is just uh, R&D money for, you know, 47 billion uh, that went through BARDA. Uh, and that represents about 50% of the US uh, R&D pharmaceutical spend per, per year. So they control the industry. 
These are all the contracts. This is just a screenshot. There are about 400 contracts here on this page. Uh, and as I just circled them to show that they're all going through the Department of Defense contracting. Um, you know, I can see, and they're all for everything, for therapeutics, vaccines, um, different treatments, thermometers, diagnostics, you know, everything. Uh, they're managed by this defense manager, Advanced Technologies International. You can see their, their <laughs> defense contractor, they're using this OTA framework. So all of these contracts are managed by, by these people, not just, not even DOD directly, but through their manager of defense contractors. Uh, this is the consortium. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip this. Um, so let me just go to here. Uh, just to finish on, you know, I, I, I've reviewed a bunch of these contracts. They're all similar. They're all uh, saying that out of scope. So, so there's a scope definition. The scope says that the government is ordering a large-scale manufacturing demonstration. Uh, sometimes they say, you know, countermeasures, prototypes, but it's always some sort of a, a countermeasure prototype demonstration. And specifically out of scope, they're mentioning here that while, you know, we have language saying that these need, need to be in compliance with FDA regulations, specifically out of scope are preclinical, clinical, and chemistry manufacturing compliance is out of scope of this product. So the government never paid and never ordered these things from pharmaceutical co uh, companies in an enforceable manner. So they're not ordered by those companies. They're, they were never supposed to be done. All of the all of what was done was just for show. And here's this the primary scope uh, of the Pfizer contract, as you can see, uh, COVID-19 pandemic, large-scale manufacturing demonstration. And if you're aware of Brooke Jackson's uh, False Claims Act lawsuit, that's still pending. It hasn't been dismissed, but it, it's still pending. We don't know, you know, if it's going to proceed to court or not. However, uh, last year, Pfizer already invoked in their motion to dismiss the case, the, the, this, this particular contract pointing to this particular clause um, and uh, saying that, judge, please dismiss this case because we did not defraud the US government. We delivered the fraud that the US government ordered. That's their, that's their motion to dismiss. And I think it's extremely important admission in the court of law that this is exactly what happened. And we need to elicit by various means. That's why I'm saying, go after them, go after Pfizer, prosecute them, because we need them to say it over and over again so that everybody can hear it, that the US government ordered fraud from them and they delivered. So this is about all I have for today. I can take a couple of questions. So I would like to know um, the money, yeah, the money side. So um, who gets to keep the money? I mean, all these contractors, are they basically, um, is a lot of money, you know, sticking with them? Do you think that is the case? Or is there also a big portion going as kickbacks or whatever to this AT, 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 ATI or to the, um, maybe to DOD? Oh, I'm sure there is a lot of, you know, it's like a sieve, uh, you know, so they throw this gigantic amount of money without much of accountability. ATI itself got about, actually, I, I, I forget the exact amount, but it's a huge contract that they got themselves for managing it. But then also, obviously, 
as I said, the, uh, Robert Kodlik was in charge of distributing the money and approving personally who it goes to. So, of course, he distributed it to a lot of his personal friends, entities that he controls, his family members control. Same for, goes for politicians. Uh, same goes for Trump's family. Ivanka and Jared were all over this, distributing to their preferred preferred entities. So all of this was just big pile of money printed by U.S. government and distributed to cronies in various forms and taking also taking stock positions because they knew that this is going to be extremely you know windfall for for a particular company. So all sorts of machinations took place. And uh, also this destroyed the pharmaceutical industry uh, and many other related industries in a sense, because now um, the, anybody legitimately who wants to develop any products, uh, let's say any treatments for COVID. I, and I know of numerous examples where um, innovators who have particular treatments, drugs, alternatives, all sorts of you know, re rehabilitation for the vaccine injured, they cannot get anywhere with FDA. FDA tells them, FDA doesn't even take their, their meetings or it just prevents them actively from, uh, from going forward. I know specifically there were around 230 vaccines proposed in development. I mean, think what you want about vaccines, but let's say we have 230 alternatives. And specifically in the case of one company who was developing mRNA, uh, FDA would not let them open investigational new drug application even, saying that, oh, it's very dangerous technology, you're going to injure people, so we, we can't allow you to do this. Okay, so that's exactly, that's what's going on. So FDA is, is running this racket where Pfizer and Moderna can approve anything without any clinical data based on eight mice, or now they're saying, well, we shouldn't hurt animals either, so we'll just, we'll, we'll just approve them. When, when other companies, even developing the same class of mRNA, are actively being prevented from market by the FDA. So anybody who says, oh, this is just, you know, new technology revolution, mRNA revolution, it's not mRNA revolution, because there is a very specific set of people who are allowed to do this revolution and nobody else is. Well, we have a question from the audience making reference to the Iron Mountain report, uh, which says um, that they will use vaccination first and then later a sort of second vaccine mixed to a food. Do you know anything about that? What's your opinion? Well, food, um, you know, you can poison people through food, but it's not as so anything that's injected is, is the most dangerous, the most dangerous way because you're bypassing all of the protective systems such as digestive system breaks apart especially large molecules like a biological so the the most sure way to deliver this biological is through injection if they want to deliver mrna through food it doesn't work because it's a when exposed to water it breaks apart uh exposed to digestive system it breaks apart so maybe they can uh poison people in some other way, put some toxins into water and food, That's, that should be definitely should watch out for that and make sure we have safety systems in place. But I'm not worried about mRNA being in food, it's just going to be broken down. Uh, unlike maybe a vaccination through, um, through like nasal spray or so, that might work. Also, because, well, maybe, but again, it has the same problems because it's exposed to air, exposed to water, which is always there. 
uh, starts breaking apart very quickly. So yeah, I would not do any vaccinations at the moment. Like I advise everyone to stop any vaccinations because this is hugely illegal what we're uncovering. We don't know what's going on. They may be replacing other vaccines with mRNA as we speak. So we should stop all vaccinations. Uh, don't do any nasal sprays or anything. Um, but yeah, like I, I also don't want to overreact and start being paranoid about everything. Like, you know, there are different mechanisms. So, so, so injection is the worst. I mean, nasal spray, yeah, it, it could hurt somebody. Um, so, but yeah, be careful. Okay, well, um, I know you got a goal. So yeah. I think maybe we leave it at uh, with these questions. Um, very, very interesting. Uh, it's amazing this kind of like in-depth uh, research that you do or your team does. It's it's really it's super. It's uh, always so kind of enlightening. You understand much more when you look at the, all these details. So th thanks ever so much, and we'll be in touch. And um, maybe I don't know if we could uh, also show your presentation to you know link it to our. Um, uh, the website or so so people can also yes, look course. at it more in deep yeah I'll, I'll i'll send you the slides okay fantastic yeah thanks so much for this update and yeah we'll we'll meet again thank you, thank you vivian thank you Wolfgang. okay bye thank you ja, Wahnsinn. Also wieder eine, jemand, der sich da ganz tief reinbohrt in die ganzen Fragestellungen. Alexandra Sascha ähm, Latipova. That's Alexandra Sascha ähm, Latipova, who gave us a closer insight into the strange military-industrial commingling, uh, even on the contractual side. Uh, there have been many questions lately. Can you get any... Uh, any vaccination at all? That's a question I'm always asked. And my answer is always, at the moment, I wouldn't get any injection. <clears throat> it's not what would happen in the US, um, what we see worldwide. For me, it's crucial that the authorities that we have to protect us against this, that these are institutionally corrupt that we can't depend on the monitoring bodies. So there can't be any safe vaccine anymore with that type of authorities. So I can only say, hands off if somebody comes with a needle around. Be careful, we can't guarantee, we don't know what's inside. There's nobody to rely upon um, monitoring the quality and this uh, care. It's just a, a precaution really not to get that uh, for that to be inversed that you can have uh, trust in the drugs um, a lot of things have been done have to be done and they have to be done but that has to be done by the people who are responsibly scientifically and politically so if they say you got to get your shots they are responsible for creating that trust again yeah, definitely. I certainly wouldn't um, get vaccinated now, but it might be difficult for people who need to get something else uh, injected um, for medical reasons. Um, be it an aesthetic, you don't know what else is in there. Um, even though you can't, um, you shouldn't expect that there's always uh, foul play involved. Uh, maybe we shouldn't get completely panicky if we need to take certain medication. You can't really help it.
Well, I'm not talking about every single one. I'm talking about the vaccinations. So if if you are uh, so if you are sick, uh, that's a different story. If you're taking different drugs, you could be skeptical about that. But that's not what I was referring to. I'm talking about preventive vaccines. Um, so that's nothing that you really need in order to um, treat an illness. That's something that you can. Uh, think about there's many people who don't get any vaccinations i haven't heard that they are worse off i don't think so really not that we hear about it anyway anyway so uh, let me turn to our last guest of the day that's michael Zeiler. are you there yes i'm here can you hear me um, let me say a few words. We can see and hear you now. You are an author and a blogger. You studied history. And until 2020, you worked in the City Magazine in Munich. You had a column there. Is that right? <coughs> and since, since then, um, you're not working there anymore, Many, maybe for reasons related to the crisis. And since that, you have been blogging, sailorsblog.de and Radio Munich. So you also write in a Schwabingen newspaper. I don't really get it. So you wrote in the general Sunday newspaper of uh, federal newspapers. Is that right? You're hard to hear. You're chopped up. You can't hear me now? Somehow the, the line was chopped. Maybe you can repeat your last sentence? Well, Schwabinger Krawall was the title of a satirical short story that uh, I published over years in um, Frankfurt Allgemeine Sonntagszeitung. You got a number of awards, uh, 2000 award, the Schwabingen Art Prize, uh, 2005, the Gottlieb Heining Prize, and 2013, the Silver Feather of the Fabulous Couch Poets. Maybe you could uh, just give us some background on why all of that found an end and what your story was. Yes, well, I did various things over the last uh, 15, 16 years. I uh, organized uh, reading stages and I was sidelined really uh, in the context of uh, COVID because I took a line that, well, you can imagine I was against uh, the countermeasures and I suspected from the get-go that um, this was a big hoax. Then the column that I've been publishing for 27 years now and since the fall of uh, 2000 was in the Munich uh, uh, Town magazine and I uh, was dealing with uh, things happening and in uh, March 2020 I was the um, opinion that it is um, the preparation of a war against Russia. Back at the time, that was not a big problem because they knew that I was always someone who was a bit of a renegade uh, and always said what he was thinking. And in the meantime, I thought maybe I was wrong, it was uh, stupid. 
And um, by now I um, turned around again and I thought that, well, maybe it was, uh, I was right after all. Uh, what happened in February of last year, that was really something stupid I did. I submitted a column on the 17th of February where I made fun of the fact that the U.S. government in particular, but also NATO and the media, kept claiming that the Russians will now invade Ukraine. And I said, well, I'll see how long they'll keep announcing it, and it won't happen. But it was really about NATO itself. And this coin was published on the 24th of February, and an hour later, the news about the invasion came, and uh, I basically um, um, put myself into the um, cesspits, and uh, then the magazine said that uh, they could not accept my attitude. Well, and since then, I have been looking very intensively at this Russia-Ukraine story, um, and I always try to uh, analyze it with a bit of distance, with my historical background and knowledge, but also um, with my common sense and uh, outsider's view in a way that a, a person would analyze it who is not a uh, legal experts and uh, says, okay, let's take a look and see if we can take a different view of this whole story. Okay, you wanted to illustrate the question, is Germany, in after delivering the tanks, leading an aggressive war against Russia? That's a very provocative question. That's why I suggested it as well. But what we've seen over the last 12 months is that in every media report, uh, newspaper, radio, TV, they always refer to the brutal war of aggression or unprovoked um, attack. Um, and it always has to be called that. You can't call it anything else. And if you uh, step, uh, take a step back and you look at what really happens there, in 2017, for instance, Ukraine didn't have an army at all. They had those so-called battalions that were uh, largely uh, led and still are led by Nazis. Uh, there was no army, and then NATO moved in. And then you can ask yourself the question, what does NATO have to do in a country that isn't a member, doesn't have a contract with um, NATO or an agreement? And then things moved on. And at the beginning, they said that uh, Germany will deliver 5,000 helmets to Ukraine, but never any weapons. Well, then it uh, became okay, no, uh, uh, some weapons, but no heavy weaponry. And um, then it said, okay, heavy weaponry, uh, but um, only uh, howitzers, no um, tanks. And uh, since yesterday, now it's uh, tanks, and it's a historical decision. Now German tanks uh, 
roll towards Russia again. And the next piece of news was that Ukraine is, of course, demanding fighter jets now. And um, if you include uh, news items that keep informing that Ukraine, again, doesn't have an army because they have a very limited number of personnel, then you can ask the question, who actually is fighting this war against Russia? And you have to answer the question by saying it's NATO. Some people are doing this by now, and then you can ask the question in more detail, but then Germany is involved in a war against Russia. And as far as we know, Russia never attacked Germany. So Germany never declared um, the uh, uh, case of defense against uh, Russia. So we're actually fighting a war against Russia. So more uh, PC political observers will say, no, it's only a, uh, an effort to defend Ukraine. But in international politics, it's really a uh, commonplace to focus on alliances. And as far as I know, we don't have an alliance with Ukraine. Well, difficult, difficult. Well, <coughs> you, there's this point saying that the president in America decides on the delivery of arms to Ukraine and also without parliamentarian consultation. That's, of course, a different kind of constellation as what we have here. Here we have apparently had a parliamentarian vote with a somewhat functioning government. Maybe you can comment on that. Well, I can be very brief in the context. Maybe I didn't notice a parliament to take a vote on the delivery of tanks, but I think it didn't. Okay, so we have a pending decision of the government here, really, to deliver these arms. Uh, it sounds a bit strange. Uh, who, what's selected, what is delivered, um, what's the business here? Well, you might uh, say that in the U.S. the president is uh, competent of uh, for making this decision. This has been determined for decades in different acts of law in the U.S. In the Second World War, well, uh, the U.S. used to have a strong trend towards neutrality, and during the Second World War, they, for the longest time, they. Um, stuck to neutrality, insisted on the neutrality, and said they wouldn't get involved. And then in 1941, President Roosevelt um, enacted uh, this Land Lease Act that allows, uh, that in, empowers him to um, de deliver weaponry uh, to the Allies, um, uh, fighting Nazi Germany, um, but it was a Lend-Lease Act. Uh, then in 1961, there's this uh, Resistance Act uh, initiated by Kennedy. Then Arms Export Control Act in 1976, which claims to be uh, controlling arms exports, but it really was about organizing it. And most recently, uh, there was a... Um, uh, 
act that has an even nicer title. It's called Ukraine Democracy Defense Act from 2022, um, enacted in January or um, uh, uh, footed in uh, 2021 and enacted before uh, the Russians invaded. And in May, it was actually adopted. So the title um, indicates that democracy is being defended in Ukraine, which, uh, if you, well, to put it bluntly, is bullshit. But those are only four examples uh, in a long series of empowerment acts that empower the U.S. president or someone um, appointed by him to determine where weapons are delivered and at what conditions. As far as I know, there are no such laws in place in Germany. Such acts would not be possible because the war of aggression is banned by our constitution. And uh, there's also the uh, agreement, the treaty on the uh, final status of Germany, the two plus four treaty, in which uh, Germany commits never to use its weapons with the uh, single um, restriction of um, the um, remits um, of the federal constitution or the UN uh, UN legislation. But um, that doesn't include the war of aggression against Russia. That's one question, which is this rebuilding after this peacekeeping. Uh, <clears throat> usually we have the Halliburton company who appears to rebuild the infrastructure. We have heard from Zasha Latipova that there is a big network of companies in the pharma industry, which can be seen as a military bioweapon complex, so to say. And um, with the mechanical weapons, we seem to have or can suppose that there's a similar contractor and subcontractor contractor system which takes action there. And I would assume that some German companies at least are involved in these supply structures as well. And that here now, well, who knows what kickback constellations we may have in place here, guided by whatever interests. What do you think? I would differentiate a bit. If we uh, take a look at these acts that I mentioned and you look at what they say, then the land lease, land lease uh, by Roosevelt 1941, um, what happened was that the idea was that uh, arms would be delivered to the different countries and they would have to return them, which is nonsense in most cases because weapons are designed to be destroyed or that they make payments for them. And uh, by the way, I can't give you the exact figure. The UK made the last um, remission in 2006 for the uh, Second World War is about a thousand billion pounds, but it was also expected that part of these uh, 
um, debts that these uh, countries had with the U.S. that they could be converted into a, a commitment to join certain inter, um, international organizations um, controlled by the U.S., uh, for instance, the World Bank, WHO, I, uh, IMF, etc. So the U.S. basically ensured a, a position of leadership in the world uh, through the uh, debts that were created that way. And if you read the uh, preamble or the introduction of these acts, uh, they always refer to the U.S. population. It says, for instance, that peace, global peace is important, but above all, for the U.S. population. So it's never about benefiting any other um, populations and concerning uh, German companies. Of course, German armaments uh, companies are involved. Um, uh, I'm not an expert, but the most prominent uh, cases, of course, Rheinmetall, who have uh, uh, a representative in the German executive, Ms. Strack-Zimmermann. But in terms of economic profits, I think it's mostly about the US. There are many observers who say that there are several wars happening simultaneously. Now, it's not only a NATO war against Russia, we also have a war of the U.S. against Europe with the objective of weakening Europe to the point that it is um, dependent on the U.S. in the long term so that it can be squeezed like a, a tomato, like a, a tube of uh, tomato pulp with a view of um, uh, against the background that the power of the U.S. in the world is not really plausible. So they uh, focus on what they have right now and try to increase that. Now, concerning Ukraine specifically, uh, we have to make a fundamental distinction between U.S. interests and uh, the interests behind that, the um, corporate interests and interests of capital representatives um, promoted by the U.S. And if we look at who owns the agricultural land in Ukraine, um, it's largely owned by DuPont and Monsanto, groups of companies that are not necessarily Ukrainian or German or European. And now for the weapons, deliveries the money the ukraine pays for the deliverance and by the aids this comes from europe this money does it yeah that's a um, severely simplified uh, representation ukraine can't make any payments because they're completely insolvent who makes payments and there were demands from the us um, Specifically said by Joe Biden, he said the Europeans should start payment, uh, paying 
I think he was talking of a sum of 1.5 billion euro per month. That's not a, a loan to the Ukraine, but with which the, uh, the Europeans are to finance uh, Ukraine. And what they're financing are weapons deliveries, arms deliveries. And so we have, we're dealing with another Lend-Lease uh, contract. So the weapons that are being taken to Ukraine now by uh, NATO, they're rented, they're leased, basically. They have to be paid for at some stage. There was a very funny fact check by a German TV station recently because it was uh, an, a prime example of the idiocy of this genre. Uh, I can only loosely quote it. Uh, the weapons uh, sent to Ukraine are uh, are they uh, lent only? And um, the fact checker says no, that's not the case because a representative of a transatlantic organization said no, it is not the case. But of course it is. In one of the agreements, it says literally condition uh, uh, of any uh, loan of um, defense items to Ukraine are subject to all applicable laws concerning repatriation, payment, and indemnity for uh, defense items lent to foreign governments. Of course, they have to be paid for nominally by Ukraine, but uh, of course by the countries and uh, governments who finance Ukraine, because Ukraine is completely bankrupt. I have a question. I recall have heard of Ukraine um, when there was a film after the collapse of the USSR. <clears throat> Ukraine initiated a massive weapons um, sale of Russian weapons. There was this film, Darwin's Nightmare, it was called where these Antonov planes full of weapons were flown, flown to Africa, returning full of fish. And I think it's Ukrainian former Soviet military who did the business there. And I could well expect these types of guys to still hang around and they are replenished now. They can do new business. I can't imagine that these highly technical weapons, which are completely out of place, for these missionaries who are there, that they're able to use them and learn it quick enough uh, to to get to anywhere with it. I could rather imagine that there is people waiting for deliveries that they can sell later on. Yes, uh, there are numerous reports about this. Thomas Rupert, who is in Russia, monitoring the press there, he reports about it uh, occasionally. It is true that a large part of the armaments delivered, and now the speaker is frozen, are uh, resurfacing on the black market. You can uh, order them on the darknet from the pistol all the way to the howitzer. How much is a Leopard 2 if I buy it on the internet? <laughs> to be honest, I don't know, um, to be precise. I'd say they're quite expensive, but I don't know what they cost on the dark net. 
I think it probably uh, stops with the tanks, but you can't tell. With a view to Ukraine, you uh, think that a lot of things will be impossible, and then you're surprised again and again what is uh, possible at the end of the day. Actually, only a very short, uh, small uh, proportion of the arms delivered actually arrive in Ukraine. And of course, this infrastructure has been in place for a long time. I hinted at the fact that in 2014 there was place, uh, practically no Ukrainian army. That's only anecdotal now, but uh, what happened was that they had a lists of weapons that they should have, for instance, Soviet tanks, and they went looking for them and they couldn't find them. They were just gone. And after 2014, beginning the summer of 2014, when they looked more closely, it was found that the weapons uh, didn't really disappear, but the uh, Ukraine handed them over to battalions, like the Asimov Battalion, for instance. They just plundered them. They went uh, to a um, location where there was an old tank. They took it along and they said, that's ours. Well, maybe the Greens will hold their promise that way, that they say, well, you're not going to deliver weapons to areas of war. Maybe they are forwarded straight away. There's lots of private armies uh, that one can hire if you've got enough money worldwide. Uh, they'd be happy to get some high-tech weaponry. And um, I did a report on private military armies. Um, it's a massive growth market. Uh, in Africa, for example, if you want to buy some uh, land, you have to make sure that nobody takes it away from you. And for that, you need armored troops. And of course, they are happy, happy customers. Well, then the question of no armaments to uh, crisis areas. Well, I'd like to uh, quote uh, Franz Josef Strauss, a former German Bavarian politician. I don't know what any weapon is supposed to do in a non-crisis area, because with a large piece of armament, any area becomes a, a crisis zone. That's not my topic. I can't remember the name of this Central uh, American uh, country that decided some decades ago uh, to abolish their army, and they turned themselves into a non-crisis area. Because if there's no weapons there, where's the crisis coming from? Was it Bolivia? No, no, it wasn't Bolivia. I would have to look it up again. But coming back to these... Uh weapon trafficking, where would they go? Are they going to other war zones? Or, for example, to equip uh, private armies? Are they just uh, stored away somewhere? It's hard to tell because the core um, point of uh, arms pushing is um, that it's covert, so you can see it in the hands of um, supposed rebel groups in Russia, because Russia doesn't only have a problem with, uh, how can I uh, put it, uh, well, an external problem, but also internal problems, because 
It's one of the country with the most diverse ethnicities, where some might say here or there, well, we'd like to be in, uh, independent now, so we never know um, where all these weapons go. We have to keep in mind as well that uh, there are different military um, regiments in Ukraine, and different units, uh, different battalions. So the Asimov Battalion is not part of the army. It's not. Um, it doesn't answer to the uh, Ministry of Defense either. It, minister, uh, it answers to the Ministry of the Interior. That makes things a bit complicated. So if you send a tank there, you don't really know who will receive it. Yeah, what the deals in the background are. Who will get it? Who will staff it? These are stories that reporters should really uh, investigate to shed light on this, which in the past, in many conflicts, there were always uh, investigative journalists from Spiegel, uh, Art, uh, or whatever, where they, uh, where they said, okay, there's some deficiencies here and this. Nothing now. Absolutely nothing. Nobody's interested either in enlightening this situation. Oh, yeah, a lot of people have a lot of interests, uh, vested interests. Well, of course, people will be interested, but uh, strangely, none of these people whose profession would require them to shed some light here. What do you think? Where is this conflict going now? That's very difficult speculation, really. Uh, I'm always happy to speculate, but uh, we say the contrary could be possible. One point is escalation. Now we see, we see, especially in Germany, politics is desperate to fight, admitting that we are at war against Russia. And um, luckily enough, from time to time, we have our foreign minister who has a couple of slips of tongues saying we are fighting a war against Russia. Uh, she said we are ruining Russia. And what I learned that uh, talks about ruins as well, which is not a peaceful approach. You can watch that escalation, look at history, for examples, where this kind of escalation led to one of the two sides saying, okay, enough, um, we'll back out. It's difficult. It's difficult to say a logics of escalation following that. Um, we're going to talk about troops, ground troops, after delivering the aircraft. And Mr. Scholz is going to say, he said already that uh, it's not possible. And then the media are going to start the chorus uh, saying that he is reluctant and, well. Well, I believe that uh, politicians are afraid of uh, uniformed citizens as well. The German soldiers have been educated differently. They have not been educated to uh, trained to be obedient only. Um, uh, there are some intelligent people there as well. So um, if uh, they fool around with them, uh, that won't really 
um, be successful, a lot of uh, soldiers will say, well, actually, this is not uh, uh, in line with my oath of, um, uh, of service, and it's not in line with the Constitution. And I think a lot of people in um, Parliament know that. I think uh, it won't work. They will um, go to and fro. Um, as um, uh, to do as much as they can uh, for those who are pulling the strings here, but they can't go all the uh, the, the full Monty, really. It's, well, it's difficult. I don't believe in much anyway or in anything, really. I think it all depends on the efficacy of the propaganda, and the propaganda is running high, um, um, possibly if they haven't convinced people up to now, they can't do, but propaganda lives of repetition. We see the incredible phenomena that the only people who are critical about this, or at least look at a different view of this conflict, see looking where is it going to go, what's the goals that we are defining, there's no war in history so far where the parties at least um, somehow discussed their, did not discuss their goals. And Germany, except from Germany, Germany doesn't do that at the moment. When I think of the sponsors of all the parties, I think of the party conventions. Now, who um, donates money to the Liberal Party, to the Social Democrats? Who can you see? All those uh, medium-sized companies that are always um, so much championed uh, that are being destroyed uh, by the high energy prices now. Uh, they've noticed that they're being turned into puppets that aren't represented by the politicians anymore. And I think there's a lot of criticism um, growing there, and I don't know how long they will um, uh, keep people on uh, in line again, and when people will start um, chasing those politicians out of office. I think there's an opportunity for this to build up. If you don't watch uh, the main news every night, you'll see the rights, uh, have the right view, and you'll start asking questions. Possibly. Well, as a historian, I can say you can look at it in a pessimistic way. In the Second World War, when on the eve of it, it when December 41, it was clear that uh, Germany had lost the war. And there's lots of reports that people from economy said we somehow have to step on the brake, but they weren't successful. Well, in, oftentimes people get involved because they're bribed. Uh, the health services, for instance, if I think of those, the, uh, the physicians who um, were involved with the masks there. It's, it's a huge superstructure. The, the, the media, they get money if they um, fall into line, if they sing from the official song um, sheet. They get a huge amount of money, and that's how they keep people in line. I'm not sure on the role money plays or an important plays. I recall a report from the final days of the Second World War here in Munich, when on the morning of 8th of May, SS people just down the road here uh, shot deserters in the morning of 8th of May. And at the end uh, of the street, you could see the American tanks. So apart from the money, which of course, 
plays a role in the corrupted uh, bodies, I th- uh, you have to think about the anarchism evolved by this um, propaganda. As I'm not a psychologist, I can't really interpret this clearly, but you do seem to have an ex- effect that once you've got into something, you know you're on the wrong way. And um, you can't only get out in the front and you can't back out anymore. And if you look at the long list of um, breaches of international law, the 2 plus 4 treaty, the Helsinki treaty um, by the German government, it is uh, trespassing all these treaties at all times. It's difficult for the chancellor. Uh, and say, sorry, um, we uh, complain ourselves about ourselves and uh, we are punishable for crimes against humanity and so on and others should look how to solve this issue. Um, I think this is something that's very difficult to stop. Maybe one should keep in mind what war really is, according to international law. We always assume that, um, as far as the discussion on the aggressive war is um, characterized, that somebody um, crosses a border with soldiers to a different country. But the term is from the Calabrian. Uh, treaty from 28 and since then it is under discussion and dispute i think in the 20 and 21st century there was um a war where no where not everyone said they are defending themselves even hitler said since uh 545 we are fighting back so this is um something that one should look at, and that's what the United Nations do, is uh, ban sanctions that are not imposed by the United Nations. So every sanction um, given by the federal government without the UN is a breach of international law. And so everybody now says, well, sanctions, okay, sanctions, no problem. We had the war against Iraq, um, 500 people, 500,000 people died because of that. And uh, if a sanction kills half a million of people, you could talk about war. And in this case, same thing as an aggressive war, it is preparing and the intent is punishable so that if the federal government um, <clears throat> sanctions Russia in 2014 with the goal to cause damage on the Russian population, this is an act of war. And um, it simply accepts that people are damaged, harmed, and killed. How can we get out of this? You read that civil disobedience is or resistance is the only thing that can um, take us out of this, but the other side read that too. Yeah, that's why the propaganda machine was tuned up. Um, thinking about propaganda, 
I read a comment in the New Zurich newspaper today um, that said Ms. Gouyer, Mr. Gouyer, I think is how to pronounce the name, who writes in a fanatical way um, about Schultz because he's so hesitant to deliver these tanks and who quite aggressively and clearly says that tanks are the right offensive weapon to conquer areas. And he said this hesitancy by Olaf Scholz um, is the end of the turn of times as proclaimed. And um, so that term came back. And um, that tells me how much all of us are subject and victim to propaganda. So first of things, it's an artificial, artificial word, times don't change. Uh, we do see a turning point in time before Christ and after Christ. And um, this is nothing new in literature. Probably people talked about the change of times, but 20, um, it was a fashionable word in 20, uh, 32 to 40, uh, 45. I read this in the National Socialistic News, October 32, for example, an engineer wrote about the turn of times, defining exactly as we see them today. He talks about that in the Renaissance, the chain, the picture of the human being changed from the medieval community to individuality, and that now in the starting Third Reich, times are turning back to the community. And if we spend a moment on this to think on what was told to us you know, over the last over the last three years, this. Uh, kind of strange solidarity and the reinterpretation of the fundamental uh, law, the basic law of physical uh, integrity and how that was perverted. We can see that this word is being used the same way the Nazis used it. So it uh, became synonymous for uh, obedience Yes, for this um, sense of community that um, we know from the Third Reich. But um, if you have to run that propaganda so high, maybe it's something that you feel that the population is not interested in the topic. That would be nice. Uh, but uh, the propaganda in the Third Reich was very vociferous as well. There is research, there are uh, researchers who claim that a large part of the population of the Third Reich wasn't really convinced. Um, uh, recently, I read the reports of the exiled Social Democrats uh, 
the so-called Super-D um, reports, uh, Social Democratic Party of Germany, they were in exile in London and they had um, correspondents uh, in Germany who surveyed the mood of the uh, population and it uh, wouldn't uh, it would be nearly amusing that in 1934-35, nearly everyone was convinced that it won't go uh, much longer. Uh, people are so unhappy with this regime they're resisting, it'll all collapse in no time. And then, at some stage, the point came where people started doubting because the opinion started spreading, well, the system and the regime are really broken already, but it's only due to the fact uh, that the uh, Führer doesn't know about it. Once he uh, sorts things out again, um, things will be all right. So the, the, that's how the mood changed. So getting back to propaganda, you can't uh, really pin it on the strength of the propaganda or the vociferousness of the uh, dissidents or whatever you call it, um, whether it's about to uh, break or not, you can't really deduce this. Well, what's different today from then is that you can organize it differently by new means of communication. Uh, we've got the international communication. We've just talked to Ms. Lavipova from US. So these are things that weren't there at the time and that people can join together to do projects facilitated by these modern means of communication. And that may be an opportunity to um, take chances and that people do note that uh, they are personally harmed now and that people don't accept this anymore. If you send soldiers to war and everything goes on at home as usual, that's something different than the war being directly between the people, amongst the people, and they are victimized by this funny way of war that we have not known before and that we have to experience now. So from history, you can't always conclude to the future. And, uh, Maybe this will um, foster a little sprout of hope here. Yes, I share your hope and I keep hoping and I'm one of those who since March of 2020 used to say, well, it'll collapse into itself soon enough. It's so obvious that this whole uh, theater play is idiotic and when Mr. Lauterbach became Minister of Health I uh, thought that's the end uh, you might as well make a, a, a table chair Minister of Health but then you see how your hopes get frustrated and what came of it which I, as I noticed with the discussions with a lot of people is the segmentation uh, of uh, society, so there's a small share of uh, people who um, quickly realized where we're headed, what's happening, who uh, get involved and, and get informed, um, getting into more and more depth of information, 
Then there's those people who didn't want to know at the beginning and who are afraid of the media, who don't really dare opening certain uh, websites because they're afraid of getting uh, mentally uh, contaminated or uh, what's this or, or that the computer virus from the Ministry of uh, uh, Interior um, will identify that they what's it called a Trojan yes um, that will inform the ministry that you called up a certain website I'm sorry to be cynical about this uh, but by the definition it's the cynicists a task to show the people how things are, not how they should be. Or as Ambrose Beer said, that's why uh, the optimist uh, tries to stab the eyes out of the cynicist um, because um, uh, they don't want to see his point of view. Um, well, will that change the war? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's more the interest uh, in the topic that dwindles away. I don't want to compare this to the monkeypox, but uh, if there's new stories every uh, now and again, and to new fear-mongering, uh, like in the uh, monkeypox, maybe the target group was too small, it's uh, only homosexuals, okay, so not so many people can identify that as a danger for themselves, a bit of a difficult topic, could be discriminating quickly and so on. So I do think that many people uh, simply didn't pick up on it. And now if the people just uh, follow their own business, um, I said, who wants to have bombs dropping around them? Nobody does. And uh, I do think that it's a kind of disinterest with many people. So there's people shouting and screaming and war, and they want to give everything. But I think it's not too many. Uh, I expect the climate lockdown will be difficult to impose because it's not too close to people, just as Corona was. Well, as a threat. Well, as we're speaking about uh, disinterest and, and lack of commitment, in a, I, I can see a different area where uh, I am very ambiguous in my hopes. Over the last 30 years, we saw again and again that the U.S. wage wars and shift the, um, the theater of action the moment they have a different interest. And some suspect, I can remember discussions when this sudden retreat from Afghanistan happened, some people said, okay, now they'll uh, target Ukraine next, so that's where they need the troops, they need to be relocated there. That's why they're leaving Afghanistan, and as far as we hear, the actual target is China. So, at a certain point, where the uh, story with China will get will heat up and uh, Ukraine will lose any interest or the US will lose any interest in Ukraine. And then there's a um, prediction uh, in place by uh, different people who say they overstretched themselves. They 
lost the war against Vietnam. They lost the war in Iraq. At the end of the day, they lost against Afghanistan. They will lose Ukraine, and they will definitely lose against China. And we can see, we're observing the collapse of an empire here, which will result in difficult, problematic things, but interesting things as well, if it happens. I spoke to someone who has more knowledge about um, economics recently and who pointed out what we're experiencing now with these financial shenanigans that are uh, happening to finance the war, but also uh, where money is created out of thin air in incredible uh, quantities. I made a video where I um, uh, explained the new um, uh, currency. There's the new wombs. Uh, um, that's a trillion euro. And um, they're talking about uh, those whoppers. I didn't quite understand all this. I'm I'm beginning to understand that this money never existed, never will exist. So this hope that a debt mountain, or what they call it now, a, a special treasure uh, uh, will be paid back. These these special funds that. Uh, the school children of today will pay this back in the future. That is a dream. That's probably, uh, that might be tied into the collapse of this empire. And um, there will be a currency reforms just like after any, any war. And then maybe we will have the opportunity as normal um, John Doe's to contribute to this. That's an interesting thing. Currencies are built on trust and trust alone. Money only works if enough people trust uh, in its value. And somebody tried to explain to me why we need to separate uh, uh, rubbish, uh, because if everybody does that, then we'll save the world. But everybody will never do it, I said, because if enough people were able to do this um, in sufficient numbers, then there wouldn't be any money. Then they'd uh, all take their money from the bank and buy gold because there's no money left. And there are pivotal times in history where people do lose faith in their money. Archaeologists in England, for instance, found a strange metal layer, corroded metal, and for a while they were wondering what the heck is this until they found that there was a time when the Roman Empire was in collapse, um, not least due to inflation, and people just threw out their money. All the money they had, they just dumped it. It stayed in the ground. They moved some other place. And there was a corroded metal uh, layer, an inch thick or so, um, that formed on the basis of this. Um, of course, history never repeats itself. If anything, it imitates itself. But uh, this gives us a um, um, hint of hope with all the despair that goes with it. 
So we're not experiencing um, realities that are cast in stone for all eternity now. So with all cynicism, I am happy to support any hope as well. It's good. It's uh, a media of exchange. It's a part of belief. The same applies for knowledge. Knowledge that we think we have is something that is possibly something that we'll have to discard. At least in medicine, I see tons of things that we should throw away. And I think other areas see the same thing um, as knowledge only reflects the interest of those who paid the scientists to produce that knowledge to make them uh, allow them make more money so that means knowledge turns money and if we look at the basic manifesto of the lisbon treaty then it is a knowledge based economic power so it's an economic power and uh, knowledge serves economy generating money that means if we want to find uh, reasonable decisions as a society we can't depend on this knowledge because this knowledge is nothing else than money which is produced there yes and uh, on other occasions but maybe uh, overall as society as people we have to reconsider this concept we have of knowledge because what we found over the last 50 100 years there's been a constant loss of knowledge it makes the impression of, of of deflation or maybe of inflation we keep claiming that we know um, ever more but actually we know ever less we don't even know how our phone works we don't know when the second world war actually started we don't really know anything anymore uh, of what we do that's a popular confusion and i've often criticized this when people say this is a mobile phone and it contains science and then you have to explain to them what's the difference between science and technology we know certain technologies we can do, but we don't know what it is that we're doing there, really. Well, another trick is, for the last three years, we've been talking a lot about a lot about health. That's something that we can feel normally if we are healthy or if we're not. And usually we know whether we have an ailment coming on by ourselves. But if we see what uh, is sold to us as science now, it's uh, molecules with a certain structure shown in the computer reacting to each other. That is where our health is anchored. And what these molecules do is nobody understands it. It's stories which has nothing to do with what we understand as being healthy beings. And this granularity of knowledge leads to the knowledge not being accessible by us. I take it a step further. It also leads to a stepwise 
alienation um, from the world. Medicine is an excellent example here because 50 or even 30 years ago, nobody could have uh, imagined that uh, somebody asked, like, uh, how are you? And uh, the response is, I don't know, I have to get tested first. And uh, we've seen with children now, for instance, that they're increasingly incorporating this idea that the world is a strange thing that humans aren't suitable for. They first have to arm themselves, and that takes us back to this uh, military uh, lingo again. They have to arm themselves first against the world, um, to brace the world that is not that he's not part of, but that is uh, his uh, inimical environment. And all of the things that we know, um, these things that we know, uh, molecules, viruses, etc., they're all models. They're not real. And all we know about the world, and somebody told me yesterday, a crazy four million are dying in uh, China of uh, Corona now. And I said, no, they're not. That's a model. It's not happening in the world. It's happening in a computer. Probably a program by Mr. Ferguson in England again. And you're confusing that with reality to the point that if uh, Mr. Ferguson's model has four million people, Chinese, dying, they really die, and you don't even have to look at what happened, what's happening actually in China now. Well, if you want to see whether they, they die or not, you have to visit a graveyard once a week. Yep. And whether you're healthy, um, well, you know that you're not ill, that you're not even thinking of your health, and uh, what you need in nutrition is that you crave it, and that is really the basis of knowledge initially. And that's something we completely lost. And it's all coming in from outside again. Uh, something is claimed and you lose your actual knowledge that way. Absolutely. Maybe this is a good point to come up with this um, newspaper news, which is the knowledge that um, is pretended shown or pretendedly shown to us um, what we have seen right in the beginning when we were looking for evidence-based uh, assessments here if we go up we see that uh, we have the school closures now they admit that this is uh, was not necessary and there was collateral damage and the lockdown it was said it's not going to be a lockdown nobody wants to build a wall is what we've heard before and um, it carries on one by one by one again this is why we have come back to youtube to see what happens whether there's uh, still uh, critical videos being censored and uh, they have one um, the campaign, everything on the table, and um, so all these things prove fake news um, by the government, really. And uh, this is really something that um, they will have to um, answer questions in many other areas as well. Well, we have to remember um, occasionally that things that are brought into the world um, incorrectly are hard to get rid of again. That reminds me of this 
um, audio play uh, by Orson Welles, The War of the Worlds. Um, it was probably uh, blown out of proportion, but some people were actually convinced that aliens had invaded the, uh, the Earth. And I did a bit of research. Um, there are people who believe it to this day that back then the aliens landed on Earth. And maybe 40 years from now, there will still be a small, uh, not so small uh, minority that 2020 was the year of the pandemic. And if you tell them, no, that was not the way, something else happened. And they said, well, my grandmother told me. And those kinds of stories are hard to eradicate anymore. Once they're, uh, they've penetrated the collective memory, and now that we're talking about knowledge, um, the, the same goes for the entire world. A generation that is largely uh, socialized via TV and um, cinema and has been prepped for war for decades because they're all about war. Um, they think that this is real and they believe that uh, war is normal. I uh, saw a film, for instance, that a uh, German Nazi party sends uh, Nazi uh, troops uh, to Ukraine. And uh, how they um, uh, realized when they arrived there, this is not the war that I know from TV. I'm just standing behind a um, piece of wood here and I wait for a loud bang to um, go off and then I'm dead. So I'm not really heroically chasing Russians. It's completely different, but this is the image that you get from TV. Well, this is something, if you take a look at the actions of the politicians, it's like as if they were in some kind of computer game or film where they just can enjoy their popcorn and then walk out and have a Coke, uh, instead of really looking at what this actually means. If we look at the, all the victims of war, why um, are we working on the escalation and trying to sell this to people, uh, tell this as something, uh, sell this as something achievable to people? And this is something that I have consider, to consider in my ideas. It's not. A fun happening that we may want to take part. It's cool to play a role, uh, sending in a little avatar and have some fun. That's not what war is like, I think. It's monstrous to do this kind of thing. Well, there's the theory, and I hope it's not my theory, it's been around a bit longer, that uh, whenever the generation that has seen war is dying off gradually, so the generation of my parents, then war has been eliminated from the collective memory to the point where people can't really understand what it's really like, and then the next generation is ready to start a new one because they don't have the immediate experience anymore. So we need tourism to war zones. Who knows? Well, anyway, you have to say there's many people in Germany who came from war zones as refugees, and maybe that makes a difference. There's no collective 
uh, uniform collective that looks back at a certain historic point in time and has forgotten everything. People who are here from Syria maybe uh, know what it means. And I think that's something to uh, kick the ball out of the pitch easily. Uh, people telling you how bad things were. Um, I have a question from the audience, which is, what do you think um, about the readiness to think of the um, artists' community in Germany? For example, people who run the TV show The Anstalt. Well, I don't know. I, I would like to not to uh, talk about uh, my colleagues. Um, um, I, I don't want to uh, denigrate anyone, but I have to say that since the beginning of the uh, Corona crisis, I'm really at loggerheads with uh, the cultural scene, particularly um, satirical um, artists. Those are the ones who um, would be called upon to expose uh, these, uh, these, these, this foolishness and, and to make fun of it, to attack it. And what we've seen, what I've seen uh, was uh, sorry, dear colleagues, so much cowardness, such uh, painful um, reference to, okay, uh, let's just wait for a, a few uh, weeks and we'll see. And now they're complaining, I don't understand why people don't want to see us anymore. Please buy our tickets. Um, we have to live off something. So if I say, um, why should somebody buy a ticket from you um, um, and accepting your uh, moral cowardice of the last few years as uh, a comedy, um, then they say, well, um, I uh, have to finance my house, my car that I, um, that I went to debt over. Uh, well, I could really get worked up over it. I can understand people's needs and, and, and um, pressures. And they might have been um, uncertain. Maybe they're not, on average, um, smarter than the average of the population. Uh, some may have said uh, already um, to themselves, well, if everybody goes along and I don't, then I'm out of the business. It's a, a kind of lifestyle that relies on um, uh, freelancing. Um, nevertheless, I find it uh, really shameful. Because the question was, what's my view of people's um, insights? Um, and I've uh, spoken to a number of people, and I stopped talking to them, who kept telling me, I know you're right. But I uh, can't come out of the closet. I uh, don't dare do it. I talked to some who were convinced uh, entirely if we go out there uh, on stage without uh, a mask, we'll kill the elderly in our audience. And sometimes the audience was no different. And I know some who fought it and who said, no, I'm not going along with this. 
for some I have to say chapeau, um, hat off with some, I don't know how they pull it off, Helmut Schleich for instance, how does he handle uh, the public radio station uh, for them to let him go public with this? And some of them were just chicken heads. Um, and I can have some understanding. No, really, they should have picked a different uh, job if, they, if they're too chicken. I think uh, it's a pity that they've missed the opportunity as the kind of uh, court jester which they could have told uh, people who sang uh, songs um, uh, against the regime weren't uh, arrested straight away. And uh, I can well understand if people now say, I can't see as uh, um, satire what you are presenting now. Yeah, let me uh, be the devil's advocate here. Um, You have to uh, speak about the uh, counterforce. It was not by coincidence that the worst measures were performed in this very area that they said, of course, um, assembly, the people in a Siemens office and in the subway are allowed, but not in a theater. And of course, you can enter a, a full you fully occupied bus, but not in a restaurant. That's the other area we can see that they were extremely forceful because that is where resistance forms. It was always in the pubs and the beer gardens where resistance formed um, the um, popular singers and, and uh, pundits were always started out in, in those establishments. And I don't think it is by coincidence that it was the restaurants, the pubs and the theaters that were closed to start with. That's where resistance is born. And then you can imagine that the artists who earned their money then were under special pressure, of course. Of course. And I think many of them were in precarious situations financially before, and that makes things even more difficult. I can understand that to a certain extent, but it is a pity, even if all small artists are small in the financial sense, that if even they got together, all of them, they could have moved things. Um, there was uh, the Berlin city cleaning, for example, who said when the mask things came on, they said, we're happy to do that, but um, we'll uh, have a break every 75 minutes uh, for uh, 30 minutes and take the mask off. And that did away with it. And um, others could have done the same thing, but as a single ant who thinks you can do everything, you can't see where all the other ants are that you can do a pile with, and um, that's it. Well, there were similar approaches at the very beginning. I can remember in March, uh, they were saying, we have to close the stages and the restaurants. I said, well, then let's not go along. It's not so difficult to coordinate um, 
how many small theaters out there in Munich? It's not 2,000 to be coordinated, it's maybe 15. And if we all say we're not closing and we'll see what happens, and the police come, uh, you can still say, here's the key, you go lock, up, lock us up. And then the second thing was when they said you're allowed to open up again with plexiglass, screens, uh, mass uh, tests only, etc., etc. And I suggested, well, let's not do this. Let's just keep the doors locked. But despite the uh, small scale of the scene, um, it, it was impossible to implement because uh, there was a lot of uh, fear of, of um, people losing their life, livelihood, which I can understand to an extent, to be honest. Well, let's see how things develop. I think it was very interesting to have this conversation and I'll spend a couple of thoughts about it on the weekend. Anyway, thank you for presenting these things to us and that we could uh, have a practical view of the aggressive war, so to say, uh, and look at that in different at different levels. Thank you very much to you, and we'll stay in contact. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Okay, that was our last guest for today, Michael Zeiler, an author and blogger, and I think. We have covered quite some ground. We've got a video from ZDF, the public television on vaccine damages. That's uh, quite interesting to see. We'll show that to finish our show today. And I can say that I know people uh, in uh, non in important situations, positions there, maybe if they are listening now, um, be good to have more uh, factual and real uh, reports on what's going on. I think there's personal responsibilities that play a role here. And um, maybe you will have to take responsibility uh, towards the people for maybe not showing everything that you should have shown. Now, maybe as a little private comment, and another thing is that we are still depending on support. Um, we have our 148th day since uh, Rainer Filmisch promised to pay. He hasn't done so as yet, and uh, that means we still depend on your support to carry on with our work. We are a charitable, char charitable, charitable trust. Now you can support us, and if you do so, um, we can issue receipts, and if you want to get more information on our legal and uh, uh, statutory situation, and that uh, we were organized uh, to um, according to the Albright uh, Foundation, it was a GmbH, a limited company. You can get the information on our website. We put it up, corona-alshos.de, about us. So check it out on the website uh, to read it up and uh, see what the situation is. Apart from that, I would like to ask you for your support to be able to carry on. I think we are getting even more important than we have been in the past. And all the experts that 
um, are um, voicing out what they have to say here. I think we are an important hub to allow the dissidents to speak out. Maybe Wolfgang, you want to close with a final word? No, that's it. Make sure the Corona Committee can continue working and we'll make sure we'll do all we can to make it interesting. Okay, well, I take that in the sense of I do not consent and I wish everybody a wonderful Friday night and a good weekend. See you next week. Normalcy after Corona is something that 10% of vaccinated are far removed, uh, fatigue, uh, shortness of breath, etc. A lot of uh, symptoms summarized as long COVID, but others may be affected by the vaccine. Those affected feel uh, left alone. That's why there was protest in front of parliament. 400 beds, portraits of many sick. This uh, demonstration in front of the parliament wants to point out that many long COVIDs and possibly uh, vaccine-damaged people are, are left alone. Also, Stephanie and Nicole. I can't work on my job right now. Uh, pr above all, I can't run properly. I used to do the half marathon. And what we see is the social discredit. Even the doctors don't believe us. Fatigue, um, vessel uh, damage. The hospitals are full of uh, COVID sufferers and vaccine um, victims. The um, government has promised to look into possible vaccine damage. Of course, it's the duty of the federal government to help the people. Uh, at the moment, it's not clear what vaccine damages are. And that's what the University Clinic of Marburg is investigating. Here's a uh, one of the few special ambulances uh, researching COVID damage. If you have over 6,000 patients on the waiting list, you can't select who's urgent and who's not. The number of um, suspected cases reported of severe uh, vaccine damage is in excess of 50,000. Independently of this uh, figure, um, the victims expect much more research to help not only long.